everyone, this is Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, and I just wanted to wish all of you a wonderful holiday season. My favorite thing about New Jersey in the holidays is going around the corner to Hillcrest Farms in Verona and picking out a ridiculously large Christmas tree. Uh, it hardly fits in our house, but it's a good time, and so I hope you all have a great one. Take care. Hey, this is the um, Jersey Devil. And I'm, um, I'm coming to you with a, a, a holiday message here. Um, you, you've all got too much stuff. You know, like, uh, not to brag, but I flutter past quite a few windows. And I can't help but notice that most of your kitchen counters are overflowing with appliances. And you've got who knows how many video game consoles. I mean, it's, it's none of my business, but if I were you... This year, maybe instead of giving a gift, you treat the family to a little getaway, a little vacation, to, oh, I don't know, maybe, um, maybe the Pine Barrens. Yeah. You could come on down to the old PBs, and you could go camping, or you could just wander around until, I don't know, the sun goes down. You could bring the whole family. You could bring your livestock if you've got livestock. That'd be great. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. You know, either way, I'll uh, I'll see you all soon. Hi, New Jersey is the world listeners. My name is Carrie Sullivan, and I'm the editor of the book New Jersey Fan Club, which was published this past summer by Rutgers University Press and the founder of Jersey Collective on Instagram. I'm going to read to you a little bit today from the introduction to my book, but before I do that, I just wanted to say that back when I was a guest on the podcast in August, we spent kind of a weird amount of time discussing the fact that I was drinking water from an Applegate Farms glass, and I just thought maybe you'd like to know that I'm currently having some tea from a Battle of Mammoth mug that I own. I guess I have a lot of New Jersey-related drinkware. Anyway, with that, allow me to read to you a little bit from the introduction to the book. I would have no trouble writing an entire book about New Jersey. I would tell you that I've lived in five counties and was born in a sixth. I've lived half a mile from a military fort. I've lived four blocks from the ocean. I've lived in flight paths and along train lines. I've lived adjacent to the Great Swamp. I've lived on a street where, if I walked to the top of its hill, I could see a sliver of the New York City skyline. I've lived on land that was once beside a horse farm. At various points in my life, I've laid in bed and listened to crickets, trains, foxes, church bells, seagulls, and bugles playing taps. All of this in the same state, no place farther than an hour from the next. I would calculate somehow the number of hours I've driven on my state's highways and tell you which stretches of the parkway feel like home. I'd share realizations I've had while stuck in traffic on 287. I'd tell you that the first time I ever drove a car, my driving instructor directed me to Route 18 around traffic circles over the newly built Route 35 bridge in Belmar, along the ocean, and to a Wawa where she bought soup that she ate in the car as I drove. I would tell you about the diners where I formed bonds with friends over plates of cheese fries, where I drank milkshakes at arguably inappropriate hours, 
How it always felt normal to me to be able to procure excellent takeout from almost every cuisine on earth without having to drive very far. How I didn't realize there was anything special about the pizza or bagels I grew up eating until I traveled to beautiful places where I was served terrible pizza by people who looked at me funny when I tried to order a plain pie. I would tell you that my great-grandmother packed cookies for Nabisco, and my grandmother worked for the Erie Railroad, and my mother went to college across the country, where no one who asked her what kind of music she liked had ever heard of Bruce Springsteen, yet. I would tell you I remember a history unit in elementary school focused on our state, culminating with a trip to the state house in Trenton, where I was captivated by a carpet depicting some of our state symbols, violets, goldfinches, oak leaves. Back at school, I remember a party where our parents were somehow roped into baking cakes shaped vaguely like each county, which were frosted with different colors and assembled together on tables in our gymnasium, a red icing star drawn over our town. I would show you photographs from when I worked as a historical interpreter at Alaire Village and Longstreet Farm, where I dressed in historically accurate clothing and felt a connection to the past. I would tell you how when I interned in the city at the Met, I commuted four hours a day on a combination of New Jersey transit trains, buses, and subways. How I got to know the rhythm of that train so well that I knew when it would come to a quiet hum as it drifted across bridges, knew when the lights were about to go off. How at first I was bewildered by all of the frantic New Jerseyans dressed in business casual attire who ran through Penn Station, but by the end of my internship I realized I'd become one of them. I would analyze the perceptions other people have of my home state that have always confounded me. As a teenager, I pored over issues of Weird New Jersey, wondering if other places also had entire magazines dedicated to their strangeness. In college, across the river in Philadelphia, I met people from all over the country and the world who had one of two reactions when I told them where I was from. I wouldn't have guessed that. Or, that makes sense. I was never sure if I reflected or subverted my home state. I was less sure what it was about me that either gave me away or incited doubt. Whenever anyone said, I'm sorry, or ew, when I said where I was from, I sat with their assertion that not only was New Jersey an oil tank-ridden, smelly, overcrowded shithole, but also that naturally I was supposed to agree with them. If I was writing a book about New Jersey, I would tell you that Sandy Hook is the place I most want to go after something bad happens to me. There's something restorative about not only the salt air, but also the place itself. It feels wild, ever-changing. It's damaged, but resilient. Sandy Hook has weathered wars and hurricanes and the threat of development, but it's still there. I would tell you I once knew a relationship was over, as we spent the day in Princeton, the state's top-rated sorbet tasteless on my tongue. That after going to the movies at the Willowbrook Mall once, my family's car was stolen, stolen from the parking lot. That as a teenager, I didn't go to the mall as often as I did downtown Red Bank, and that almost every place I frequented has been now turned into something else. That when I walk around Bradley Beach and Ocean Grove, I gawk at the houses, wondering if I could ever afford even the worst one. I would tell you what New Jersey has given me, and I would tell you what it has taken. I would tell you what New Jersey made me, and I would tell you why it matters. Like I wrote in that introduction, as much fun as I would have had writing all of those stories, I was much more interested in what other writers and artists had to say about New Jersey, which is why a New Jersey fan club is an anthology. The book contains the work of over 60 contributors, including your fearless leader, Chris Gethard, 
And there are interviews with people like Mark Skirman from Weird New Jersey, Jack Antonoff, some of the folks who were involved with Asbury Lanes back in the day, and even a zoologist from the state's Division of Fish and Wildlife. There are comics about things like the Rutgers grease trucks and a historic egg vending machine that once existed in Warren County, plus a bunch of personal essays, historical writing, a recipe, a crossword puzzle, a bunch of other fun stuff. If you need a last-minute holiday gift, or if your New Year's resolution this year is to read more, you can pick up a copy of New Jersey Fan Club wherever books are sold, including your favorite New Jersey independent bookseller or your local library. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a really wonderful holiday season. Chris and uh, New Jersey is the world and listeners. This is Sean from Secret Pizza. Um, happy to be included in this Ulog festivities. Wish everyone happy holidays. Uh, just now, I was making myself a pizza for lunch, which is in the oven as we speak. I don't eat pizza for every day or every meal or anything like that, but I uh, I wanted some right now. While I was making it, a man knocked on the window and turned out he was uh, Chef Luigi from a cheese company. He just wanted to drop off his information. Um, And that got me to thinking. Some of my friends and I, uh, as you know, we grew up in Essex County and uh, the town of Verona. And um, we grew up saying a a name... uh, that some people like to say differently than we do. That name is uh, Mario. Mario versus Mario. So I just want to kind of, uh, while I have your ear, start that conversation and and see, you know, what do do people say? I grew up with, uh, there was a kid in school named Mario, so we said Mario, and that extended to when we were playing video games. But... I've been ridiculed by Midwesterners and uh, people from other parts of the country that think it should clearly be Mario and nothing else. And um, I remember uh, listening to a poker podcast once and the guy was saying, oh yeah, my friend Mario. Actually, no, he's from New Jersey and he says it's Mario. And that made me feel great because, you know, I was like, not only is this guy from New Jersey, not only is he saying Mario the way I say it, but, you know, that's kind of uh, just a little little aside. Anyway, I'm uh, not going to take up too much of your time. 
Uh, Don Finelli was here recently. It was a blast. We had a great time. Uh, he's going to come by another time and make some pizzas with me. So that'll be fun. And uh, anyway, I just want to thank you for letting me be a small part of this uh, wonderful holiday celebration and wish you guys all the, uh, the best happy holidays and a happy new year. And uh, I'll be talking to you soon. Bye. Hello, friends. It's Brian. You may know me from the Carranza episode of New Jersey is the World. I spent the last eight years studying history and perfecting my vegan chili recipe. But there's also something that I've really wanted to do for a while, and that is to write and tell my own story. What follows is an original tale inspired by Nathaniel Hawthorne's Young Goodman Brown and the Victorian tradition of Christmas ghost stories, such as Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. This story is accompanied by custom sound effects recorded throughout New Jersey over the past month. I hope you enjoy the retreat, a tale of Christmastime suspense set in New Jersey. When asked what it was like to work with Emerson, others often described him as unusually quirky and aloof, even for someone whose odd writing style and subject matter had contributed to his reputation as one of New Jersey's most promising new authors. Despite his financial success over the past three years, Emerson refused to move out of his cramped but well-ordered New Brunswick apartment. Emerson valued, and his mind thrived, on uniformity. He had long maintained the same strict weekly routine. So much so, that the waitstaff at the restaurants he patronized knew the exact day and time he would eat at their establishment. They tended to overlook Emerson's odd mannerisms, because he lavished them with generous tips for reserving his favorite tables and placing his order, always the same, with the kitchen as soon as he arrived. For Emerson, the standardization that defined nearly every aspect of his life was the bedrock of his success. He insisted that reducing the number of decisions he was forced to make on a daily basis allowed him to devote all of his mental energy to his craft. Despite Emerson's many eccentricities in the Montclair offices of his agent, Natalie, he was affectionately known as Old Faithful, both for his rigid adherence to his schedule and his even disposition. However, few staff members realized that Natalie had given Emerson the nickname because he had not missed the deadline since signing with the agency a few years back. Early in their relationship, Natalie realized that the almost motherly care she imparted on Emerson resulted in clear financial gains. But, as the years passed, she found that she had developed an affection for Emerson that she hadn't for the other writers she represented. Perhaps this close relationship explained why both Emerson and Natalie were so taken aback when his first true case of writer's block developed in June. While he continued to submit his weekly columns and make regular submissions to literary magazines, Emerson struggled to make progress on the final chapters of an ambitious novel, part of a lucrative contract he had just signed with the prestigious Graham and Meller Publishing Company. As the months passed, Natalie became increasingly concerned for Emerson as the mild irritation he expressed over the summer began to transform into something much darker and self-destructive by early fall. By September, Emerson's worsening mood became increasingly evident in his weekly columns, and in October his usually calm composure began to break. After a series of incidents in which he lashed out at those closest to him, not only Natalie and her staff, but also the employees of the restaurants and stores he frequented, Natalie knew it was time for her to intercede. In early November, 
Natalie met with Mel, Emerson's editor with Graham and Meller Publishing, to discuss how best to assist her client. Natalie believed that a change in surroundings, a writer's retreat that would get him out of the city and allow him to clear his mind, would be the best way to reignite Emerson's creative process. However, she also understood that Emerson would forcefully resist any attempt to alter his routine unless she and Mel presented the idea to him as a united front. Mel believed that Natalie's plan would work, but also suggested that Emerson might be more open to the idea, and, ultimately more successful, if they could find a way to reduce the number of decisions he would have to make. As Mel put it, a controlled environment, writer's retreat. Natalie agreed. Over the following week, Natalie arranged a three-week retreat for Emerson at her cousin's remote cabin in the woods near a lake in Sussex County. Natalie felt a special connection to the cabin, which had once belonged to her grandparents, and had inspired happy childhood memories of the clear summer days she had spent there with her family. The isolation of the cabin would allow Emerson to focus on his writing. More importantly, time away from other people would, Natalie hoped, reduce Emerson's stress. In an effort to prevent future outbursts like those she had seen and heard about in October, Natalie arranged for family friends who owned the Mayfair Diner, a short drive from the cabin, to prepare Emerson's favorite meals and pack them along with supplies for Emerson to pick up on a weekly basis. As there was no internet at the cabin, Natalie arranged for the diner to reserve a quiet area where Emerson could submit his columns using the diner's Wi-Fi. She even arranged for a place in town where Emerson could stay in the event of a storm, because her cousin, who strictly avoided the cabin in bad weather, warned that during hard rains, the road to the cabin became impassable if the lake overflowed its banks. Emerson seethed when Natalie laid out her plan for him to take a writer's retreat. He thought she knew him. How could he possibly be successful if he abandoned the things that made him who he was? In his mind, he knew his writing issues were due to the fact that his work had been impeded by the increased incompetence of those around him, including Natalie and her staff. Didn't she understand this was not his fault? In his frustration, he tuned her out after she discussed her arrangements with the people she knew at some diner, which she said did not matter. In the end, Emerson agreed to the retreat when Mel voiced support for Natalie's poorly considered idea. He had little choice. He knew that Natalie was wrong, but also needed to impress Graham and Meller Publishing. Emerson knew that a well-received novel with this prestigious publisher would help him achieve the respect he truly deserved. He understood that it would be unwise to lose his composure in front of Mel. He would go on this ridiculous retreat. He would show them that Natalie had made an error by meddling in his creative process. He would go to this cabin, and when he returned, maybe he would begin looking for a new agent. In early December, Emerson drove the one and a half hours up 206, first to the diner, then, after loading the massive cooler of provisions into the backseat of his car, he made his way to the cabin. As he unloaded his car, Emerson noted that the weather was unusually warm and sunny for this late in the year. However, as he carried his last bag into the cabin, a slight breeze blew across the lake, rustling the branches of the pine trees and the fallen leaves surrounding the cabin. And as he walked up the path, he could have sworn that, at the edge of hearing, the trees made a noise that sounded just like his name. It must have been his imagination the stress of being forced to go on this trip. Frustrated and a little unnerved, Emerson slammed the door to the cabin and began unpacking his things. It was essential for him to determine how best to order his life in this cabin for the coming weeks. Three days after arriving, 
Emerson found that the isolation suited him. The cabin was more spacious, more open than his New Brunswick apartment. He enjoyed the Whirlpool tub that he had initially dismissed as a waste of money. The on-site washer and dryer were a welcome change from having to haul his clothes to the laundry room in his apartment complex. He even found that he enjoyed putting in his earbuds and walking along the road that led to the cabin. He began to appreciate how beautiful the lake and the surrounding woods truly were. More importantly, Emerson was making progress on his novel. He clearly thrived when he was left to his own devices and not subject to the shortcomings of other people. He said as much in an email to Natalie when he submitted his weekly column from the diner, whose food was better than he had anticipated. Over the following two weeks, Emerson's mood improved significantly as he settled into his new routine. He had determined how best to address the problems that were impeding his novel. He found an ability to focus in a way that had eluded him in his apartment, where the neighbors and their yappy dog could break his concentration. In fact, he began wearing his earbuds everywhere as the music drowned out noises like the creaking of the cabin and allowed him to focus when he was walking outside. When his headphone died on a breezy night, right before he got into his car to drive into town and submit his column, Emerson arranged for a few additional pairs of Bluetooth headphones to be delivered to the diner. He even begrudgingly contacted Natalie to tell her that she was right to suggest this retreat. She was so pleased that she invited him to Christmas Eve dinner at her home for the first time. He agreed, despite the fact that he typically avoided holidays as they forced him to break his orderly routine, because Natalie had also invited Mel, and he was eager to discuss his progress with them. As his last week in the cabin began, Emerson felt confident in the work he had achieved, so much so that he was considering combining his savings and the proceeds from his novel to buy a cabin, his own ordered writer's retreat. Maybe he would even look for something nearby. However, several days before his planned departure, Emerson's fortunes took a turn for the worse. After considerable success, he struggled to find a way to connect the final chapters of his novel. He knew he was so close. The problem consumed him. His schedule deteriorated. He sat at the computer looking for words that would not come. He did not leave the cabin. His weekly column went unwritten. He did not care. He needed to solve this puzzle. He forgot to eat. He became consumed by his inability to find a solution, to complete his work. On the night of December 22nd, he determined that the best way forward was to return to the orderly world he had created. It had served him so well in the past. He resolved to pack his things and return home a day earlier than originally planned. The following morning, Emerson began to pack his things. Around noon, he jammed in his earbuds, set his music on shuffle mode, and began to load his things into the car. Then, while lugging the massive cooler out of the cabin, the lyrics of a long-forgotten song sparked his imagination. In the resulting creative outburst, he realized how to overcome the problem that had plagued him. The puzzle was solved. He knew how to finish the novel. He had to finish it now. Dropping the cooler on the porch, Emerson ran back to the car, grabbed his briefcase, and rushed back into the cabin to commit his thoughts to paper before they left his head. He had never been so focused. He put the song that had inspired this idea on repeat and turned the volume all the way up. He knew what he was writing was brilliant. The world around him faded. And so, in this state of hyperfocus, Emerson was oblivious to the incoming storm. That is, until several hours later, when his earbuds died. In that moment, Emerson's ears were open to the world around him for the first time in weeks. 
What he heard chilled him to the bone. Amidst the lashing of the rain and the creaking of the cabin, he heard it again. His name, louder than before, too loud to be his imagination. His name, coming from the surrounding trees. As he watched the wind rip through the branches of the trees, whatever was calling his name became more strident, forceful. As the storm intensified, Emerson knew on an instinctual level that he had to leave this place, now. Emerson ran to his car and began to drive towards the road. It was then that he discovered that the lake had risen, obstructing the road. He was trapped, terrified, desperate, fearing for his life. Emerson hurtled madly, erratically back to the cabin. As he ran, the distorted cacophony echoing his name overwhelmed him. He fell to the ground. Then Emerson yelled, primal, guttural. His words carried into the wind, unheard by human ears. Natalie was deeply concerned when Emerson failed to come to her Christmas Eve dinner. She passed an awkward evening trying to bridge the conversation between her family and Mel. Emerson could have at least given her the courtesy of letting her know that he decided to blow her off. This was not like him at all. Natalie left the pointed voicemail on Emerson's phone shortly after her children opened their gifts on Christmas Day. The ensuing chaos, a mixture of Nerf guns, video games, and corralling her daughter's new kitten, drove Emerson from Natalie's mind. When she had not heard from Emerson by the 27th and received a call informing her that he had failed to submit his weekly column, Natalie's frustration turned to worry. It was possible that he still resented her for suggesting the writer's retreat but he had never missed his column. She drove to New Brunswick to find he was not home. She visited the restaurants he frequented, but none of the staff had seen him. Neither had his neighbors. Was Emerson still at the cabin? This might explain why he hadn't called her back. Cell service was spotty at the cabin. With her cousin visiting family in Florida, Natalie called the only other people she could think of, her friends at the diner. When they too reported they hadn't seen him, Natalie decided to drive to the cabin to check on Emerson herself. As Natalie turned on the road that led to the cabin, she knew that something was wrong. Emerson's car was parked at an odd angle, a few hundred yards from both the road and the cabin. As she approached, she noticed the driver's door was ajar. Riddled with anxiety, she hurried to the cabin. There she found no sign of Emerson, only an empty cooler on the porch, and a computer, a pair of earbuds, and the contents of his briefcase on the kitchen table. Natalie frantically searched the woods surrounding the cabin. There was no sign, no trace of Emerson. After nearly an hour of frenzied searching, Natalie realized this was going nowhere. She had to stop panicking and make a plan if she hoped to find her client, her friend. As Natalie took a moment to compose herself, she was startled by a gust of air. As she watched the wind ripple through the pines, she realized something was different. The thing that made this place so special for Natalie as a child, a secret she had always kept to herself, was somehow missing. In the midst of her panic, she had somehow failed to notice that the branches blowing in the breeze no longer made that familiar sound, the noise that sounded so much like her name. Hat. Gateway to the Dimensions 
a full-color brochure for the Institute of Chaos Studies and the Moore Science Ashram in Ongsat, New Jersey. Introductions. You would not be reading this brochure if you had not already penetrated halfway to the Institute of Chaos Studies. You've been searching for us without knowing it. Following oblique references in crudely Xerox marginal publications, crackpot mystical pamphlets, mail-order courses in chaos magic, a paper trail, and a coded series of rumors spread at street level through circles involved in the illicit distribution of certain controlled substances and the propagation of certain acts of insurrection against the planetary work machine and the consensus reality. Or perhaps through various obscure mimeographed technical papers on the edges of chaos science, through pirate computer networks, or even through pure synchronicity and the pursuit of dreams. In any case, we know something about you, your interests, deeds and desires, works and days, and we know your address. Otherwise, you would not be reading this for sure. Background. During the 1970s and 80s, chaos began to emerge as a new scientific paradigm on a level of importance with relativity and quantum mechanics. It was born out of the mixing of many different sciences, weather prediction, catastrophe theory, fractal geometry, and the rapid development of computer graphics capable of plunging into the depths of fractals and strange attractors, hydraulics and fluid turbulence. Evolutionary biology, mind-brain studies, and psychopharmacology also played major roles in forming the new paradigm. The slogan, Order Out of Chaos, summed up the gist of this science. Whether it studied the weird fractional dimensional shapes of underlying swirls of cigarette smoke, or the distribution of colors in marbled paper, or else dealt with harder matters such as heart fibrillation, particle beams, or population vectors. However, by the late 80s, it began to appear as if this chaos movement had split apart into two opposite and hostile worldviews, one placing emphasis on chaos itself, the other on order. According to the latter sect, the determinists, chaos was the enemy, randomness a force to be overcome or denied. They experienced the new science as a final vindication of classical Newtonian physics and as a weapon to be used against chaos, a tool to map and predict reality itself. For them, chaos was death and disorder, entropy and waste. The opposing faction, however, experienced chaos as something benevolent, the necessary matrix out of which arises spontaneously an infinity of variegated forms, a pleroma rather than an abyss, a principle of continual creation, unstructured, fecund, beautiful spirit of wildness. These scientists saw chaos theory as vindication of quantum indeterminacy, Godel's proof, promise of an open-ended universe, Cantorian infinities of potential, chaos's health. Easy to predict which of these two schools of thought would receive vast funding and support from governments, multinationals, and intelligence agencies. By the end of the decade, quantum chaos had been forced underground, virtually censored by prestigious scientific journals, which published only papers by determinists. The dissidents were reduced to the level of the margin, and there they found themselves part of yet another branch of the paradigm, the underground of cultural chaos, the magicians, and of political chaos, extremist, anti-authoritarian mutants. Unlike relativity, which deals with the macrocosm of outer space, and quantum, which deals with the microcosm of particle physics, chaos science takes place largely within the mesosphere, the world as we experience it in everyday life, from dripping faucets to banners flapping in the autumn breezes. Precisely for this reason, useful experimental work in chaos can be carried on without the hideous expense of cyclotrons and orbital observatories. So even when the leading theoreticians of quantum chaos began to be fired from university and corporate positions, they were still able to pursue certain goals. Even when they began to suffer political pressures as well and sought refuge in space among the mutants and marginals, still they persevered. 
By a paradox of history, their poverty and obscurity forced them to narrow the scope of their research to precisely those areas which would ultimately produce concrete results, pure math, and the mind, simply because these areas were relatively inexpensive. Up until the crash of 87, the alternative network amounted to little more than a nebulous weave of pen pals and computer enthusiasts, whole earth nostalgists, futurologists, anarchists, food cranks, neo-pagans and cultists, self-publishing punk poets, armchair schizophrenics, survivalists, and male artists. The crash, however, opened vast but hard-to-see cracks in the social and economic control structures of America. Gradually, the marginals and mutants began to fill up those fissures with the wegs of their own networking. Bit by bit, they created a genuine black economy, as well as a shifting, insubstantial autonomous zone, impossible to map, but real enough in its various manifestations. The orphan scientists of QC theory fell into this invisible anti-empire like a catalyst. Or perhaps it was the other way around. In either case, something crystallized. To explain the precipitation of this jewel, we must move on to the specific cases, people, and stories. History. The Moorish Orthodox Church of America is an offshoot of the Moorish Science Temple and the New World's first Islamic heretical sect, founded by a black circus magician named Noble Drew Ali in Newark, New Jersey, in 1913. In the 1950s, some white jazz musicians and poets who held passports in the MST founded the Moorish Orthodox Church, which also traced its spiritual ancestry to various modern bishops loosely affiliated with the Old Catholic Church and schisms of Syrian Orthodoxy. In the 60s, the church acquired a new direction from the psychedelic movement, and for a while maintained a presence at Timothy Leary's commune in Millbrook, New York. At the same time, the discovery of Sufism led certain of its members to undertake journeys to the east. One of these Americans, known by the Moorish name Wally Fard, traveled for years in India, Persia, and Afghanistan, where he collected an impressive assortment of exotic initiations, Tantra in Calcutta from an old member of the Bengali terrorist party, Sufism from the Ovasi order in Shiraz, which rejects all human masters and insists on visionary experience. And finally, in the remote Badakhshan province of Afghanistan, he converted to an archaic form of Ismailism, the so-called assassins, blended out of Buddhist Yabyum teachings, indigenous shamanic sorcery, and extremist Shiite revolutionary philosophy worshippers of the Umal Khattab, the Matrix book. Up until the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the reactionary Orthodox revolution in Iran, Fard carried on trade in carpets and other well-known Afghan exports. When history forced him to return to America in 1978, he was able to launder his savings by purchasing about 200 acres of land in the New Jersey Pine Barrens. Around the turn of the decade, he moved into an old rod and gun club on the property, along with several runaways from Paramus, New Jersey, and an anarchist lesbian couple from Brooklyn, and founded the Moorish Science Ashram. Through the early to mid-80s, the commune's fortunes fluctuated, sometimes nearly flickering out. Fard self-published a series of Xeroxed visionary recitals in which he attempted a synthesis of heretical and antinomian spirituality, post-situationist politics, and chaos science. After the crash, a number of destitute Moors and sympathizers began turning up at the ashram seeking refuge. Among them were two young chaos scientists recently fired from Princeton on the charge of seditious nonsense, a brother and sister, Frank and Althea Dobbs. The Dobbs twins spent their early childhood on a UFO cult commune in rural Texas, founded by their father, a retired insurance salesman who was murdered by rogue disciples during a revival in California. One might say the siblings had a start in chaos, and the ashram's modus vivendi suited them admirably. The Pine Barrens have often been called a perfect place for UFO landing. 
They settled into an old Airstream trailer and constructed a crude laboratory in a rebuilt barn hidden deep in the pines. Illegal sources of income were available from agricultural projects, and the amorphous community took shape around the startling breakthroughs made by the Dobbs twins during the years around the end of the decade. As undergraduates at the University of Texas, the siblings have produced a series of equations which, they felt certain, contained the seeds of a new science they called cognitive chaos. Their dismissal from Princeton followed their attempt to submit these theorems, along with the theoretical philosophical system built upon them, as a joint PhD thesis. On the assumption that brain activity can be modeled as a fractal universe and neutrate topology interfacing with both random and determined forces, the twins' theorem showed that consciousness itself could be presented as a set of strange attractors, or patterns of chaos, around which specific neuronal activity would organize itself. By a bizarre synthesis of Mandelbrot and Cantor, they solved the problem of n-dimensional attractors, many of which they were able to generate on Princeton's powerful computers before their hasty departure. While realizing the ultimately indeterminate nature of these mind maps, they felt that by attaining a thorough, non-intuitive, and intuitive grasp of the actual shapes of the attractors, one could ride with chaos, somewhat as a lucid dreamer learns to contain and direct the process of REM sleep. Their aborted thesis suggested a boggling array of benefits which might accrue from such links between cybernetic processes and awareness itself including the exploration of the brain's unused capacities, awareness of the morphogenetic field, and thus conscious control of autonomic functions, mind-directed repair of tissue at the cellular and genetic level, control over most diseases and the aging process, and even a direct perception of the Heisenbergian behavior of matter, a process they called surfing the wave function. Their thesis advisor told them that even the most modest of these proposals would suffice for their expungement from the graduate faculty. And if the whole concept, including theorems, were not such obvious lunacy, he would have reported them to the FBI as well. Two more scientists, already residents of Ong's Hat, joined with Fard and the twins in founding the Institute of Chaos Studies. By sheer chance, their work provided the perfect counterparts to the Dobbs research. Harold Acton, an expatriate British computer and reality hacker, had already linked 64 second-hand personal computers into a vast ad hoc system based on his own I Ching-oriented speculations. And Martin Kalikov, a native of the barons for nearby Chatsworth had set up a machine shop. Ironically, Martin's ancestors once provided guinea pigs for a notorious study in eugenics carried out in the 1920s at the Vineland, New Jersey State Home for the Insane. Published as a study in heredity and feeble-mindedness, the work proclaimed poverty, non-ordinary sexuality, reluctance to hold a steady job, and enjoyment of intoxicants as proof of genetic decay and thus made a lasting contribution to the legend of bizarre and of crafty and piney backwoods people, ancestrous hermits of the bogs. Martine had long since proven herself a bricoluse, electronics buff, and backlot inventor of great genius and artistry. With the arrival of the Dobbs twins, she discovered her true métier in the realization of various devices for the implementation of their proposed experiments. The synergy level at the ICS exceeded all expectations. Contacts with other background experts in various related fields were maintained by Black Modem, as well as personal visits to the ashram. The spiritual rhythms permeating the place proved ideal. Periods of days, lazy contemplation, and applied hedonics alternating with peak bursts of self-overcoming activity and focused attention. The hodgepodge of Moorish science, Tantra, Sufism, Ismaili esotericism, alchemy, and psychopharmacology, biofeedback, and brain-machine meditation techniques, etc., seem to harmonize in unexpectedly fruitful ways with the pure science of the ICS. Under these conditions, progress proved amazingly swift, stunning even the Institute's founders. 
Within a year, major advances had been made in all the fields predicted by the equations. Somewhat more than three years after founding, there occurred the breakthrough, the discovery which served to reorient our entire project in a new direction. The gate. But to explain the gate, we must retrace some steps and reveal exactly the purposes and goals of the ICS and Morris Science Ashram, the curriculum upon which our activities are based and which constitutes a raison d'etre. The curriculum. The original and still ultimate concern of our community is the enhancement of consciousness and consequent enlargement of mental, emotional, and psychic activities. When the ashram was founded by W. Fard, the only means available for this work were the bag full of oriental and occultist meditational techniques he had learned in Central Asia, the first-generation mind machines developed during the 80s, and the resources of exotic pharmacology. With the first successes of the Dobbs twins' research, it became obvious to us that the spiritual knowledge of the ashramites could be reorganized into a sort of preparatory course of training for workers in cognitive chaos. This does not mean we surrendered our original purpose, attainment of non-ordinary consciousness, but simply that ICS work could be viewed as a prolongation and practical application of the ashram work. The theorems allow us to redefine self-liberation to include physical self-renewal and life extension, as well as the exploration of material reality, which we maintain, remains one with the reality of consciousness. In this project, the kind of awareness fostered by meditational techniques plays a part just as vital as the techne of machines and the pyramentation of mathematics. In this scenario, the theorems, or at least a philosophical understanding of them, serve the purpose of an abstract icon for contemplation. Thus, the theorems can be absorbed or englobed to the point where they become part of the inner structure, or deep grammar, of the mind itself. In the first stage, intellectual comprehension of the theorems parallels spiritual work aimed at refining the faculty of attention. At the same time, a kind of psychic anchor is constructed, a firm grounding in celebratory body awareness. The erotic and sensual for us cannot be ritualized and aimed at anything higher than themselves. Rather, they constitute the very ground on which our dance is performed, and the atmosphere or taste with which permeates our whole endeavor. We symbolize this first course of work by the tripartite Sanskrit term Satichananda, being consciousness bliss. The ontological level symbolized by the theorems, the psychological level by the meditation, the level of joy by our tantric activity. The second course, which can begin at any time during or after the first, involves practical instruction in a variety of hard sciences, especially evolutionary biology and genetics, brain physiology, quantum mechanics, and computer hacking. We have no need for these disciplines in any academic sense. In fact, our work has already overturned many existing paradigms in these fields and rendered the textbooks useless for our purposes. So we have tailored these courses specifically for relevance to our central concern and jettisoned everything extraneous. At this point, a fellow of the ICS is prepared for work with a device we call the egg. This consists of a modified sensory deprivation chamber in which attention can be focused on a computer terminal and screen. Electrodes are taped to various body parts to provide physiological data, which is fed into the computer. The explorer now dons a peculiar helmet, a highly sophisticated fourth-generation version of the early brain machines, which can sonically stimulate brain cells, either globally or locally, in various combinations, thus directing not only brain waves, but also highly specific mental physical functions. The helmet is also plugged into the computer and provides feedback in various programmed ways. The explorer now undertakes a series of exercises in which the theorems are used to generate graphic animations of the strange attractors, which map various states of consciousness, setting up feedback loops between this iconography and the actual states themselves, 
which are in turn generated through the helmet simultaneously with their representation on the screen. Certain of these exercises involve the alchemical use of mind-active drugs, including new vasopressin derivatives, beta-endorphins, and hallucinogens, usually in threshold dosages. Some of these tinctures are simply to provide active relaxation and focused attention states. Others are specifically linked to the requirements of cognitive chaos research. Even in the earliest and crudest stages of the egg's development, the ICS founders quickly realized that many of the Dobbs twins' PhD thesis predictions might be considered cautious or conservative. Enhanced control of autonomous body functions was attained even in the second-generation version, and the third provided a kind of bathysphere capable of diving down even to the cellular level. Certain unexpected side effects included phenomena usually classified as paranormal. We knew we were not hallucinating all this, quite bluntly, because we obtained concrete and measurable results not only in terms of yogic powers, such as suspended animation, inner here, lucid dreaming and the like, but also in observable benefits to health, rapid healing, remission of chronic conditions, absence of disease. At this point in development of the egg, third generation, the researchers attempted to descend, like sci-fi micronauts, to the quantum level. Perhaps the thorniest of all quantum paradoxes involves the collapse of the wave function, the state of Schrodinger's famous cat. When does a wave become a particle? At the moment of observation? If so, does this implicate human consciousness in the actual Q structure of reality itself? By observing, do we, in effect, create? The ICS team's ultimate dream was to ride the wave and actually experience, rather than merely observe, the function collapse. Through participation in Q events, it was hoped that the observer and observed through participation in Q events, it was hoped that the observer observed duality could be overcome or evaded. This hope was based on rather orthodox Copenhagen interpretations of quantum reality. After some months of intensive work, however, no one had experienced the sought for and expected moment. Each wave seemed to flow as far as one cared to ride it, like some perfect surfer's curl extending to infinity. We began to suspect that the answer to the question when might be never. This contingency had been described rigorously and only one interpretation of curiality, that of Jay Wheeler, who proved that the wave function need never collapse, provided that every Q event gives rise to an alternating world. The cat is both alive and dead. To settle this question, a fourth generation of the egg was evolved and tested, while simultaneously a burst of research was carried out in the abstruse areas of Hilbert space and the topology of n-dimensional geometry on the intuitive assumptions that new attractors could thereby be generated and used to visualize or grok the transitions between alternate universes. Although the immediate success of the fourth generation egg proved a moment of fear and panic, again, the ICS triumphed. Although the immediate success of the fourth generation egg proved a moment of fear and panic unmatched in the whole history of cognitive chaos. The first run-through of the CAT program was undertaken by a young staff member of great brilliance, one of the original Paramus runaways, whose nickname happened to be Kit, and it happened to take place on the spring equinox. At the precise moment the heavens changed gears, so to speak, the entire egg vanished from the laboratory. Consternation would be a mild term for what ensued. For about seven minutes, the entire ICS lost its collective cool. At that point, however, the egg reappeared, with its passenger intact and beaming, like Alice's Cheshire Cat rather than Schrodinger's poor victim. He had succeeded in riding the wave to its destination, an alternate universe. He had observed it and, in his words, memorized its address, 
Instinctively, he felt that certain dimensional universes must act as strange attractors in their own right, and are thus far easier to access, more probable, than others. In practical terms, he had not been dissolved, but had found a way to a universe next door. The gateway had been opened. Where is Ong's Hat? According to Piney legend, the village of Ong's Hat was founded sometime in the 19th century, when a man named Ong threw his hat up in the air, landed it in a tree, and was unable to retrieve it. We like to think it vanished into another world. By the 1920s, all traces of settlement other than a few crumbling chimneys had faded away. But the name appealed so much to cartographers that some of them retained it, a dot representing nothing in the midst of the most isolated, flat, dark scrub pines and sandy creeks and all the vast, empty, and perhaps haunted barrens. W. Fard's acreage lies in the invisible suburbs of this invisible town, of which we are the sole inhabitants. You can find it easily on old survey maps, even trace out the old dirt road leading into the bogs where a little square represents the decrepit Angshat Rodden Gun Club original residence. However, you might discover that finding the ICS itself is not so simple. If you compare your old survey map with the very latest, you will note that our area lies perilously close to the region infamous in certain years, the South Jersey nuclear waste dump near Fort Dix. The accident that occurred there has made the Barrens even more empty and unpopular, as any hardcore pineys fled the pollution melting into the state's last untouched wilderness. The electrified fence shutting off the deadly zone runs less than a mile above our enclave. The accident occurred while we were in the first stages of developing the fourth generation egg, the gate. At the time, we had no idea of its full potential. However, all of us, except for the very youngest who were evacuated, had by then been trained in elementary self-directed generation. A few tests proved that with care and effort, we could resist at least the initial onslaught of radiation sickness. We decided to stick it out, at least until the authorities, rather than the dump, proved too hot to endure. Once the gate was discovered, we realized the situation had been saved. The opening and actual interdimensional travel can only be affected by a fully trained cognitive chaos. So the first priority was to complete the course for all our members. A technique for carrying young children was developed. It seems not to work for adult uninitiates. And it was discovered that all inanimate matter within the egg is also carried across with the operator. Little by little, we carted our entire establishment, including most of the buildings, across the topological abyss. Unlike Baudelaire, who pleaded, anywhere, so long as out of this world, we knew where we were going. Angshat had indeed vanished from New Jersey, except for the hidden laboratory deep in the backwoods where the gate exists. On the other side of the gate, we found a pine barren similar to ours, but in a world which apparently never developed human life. Of course, we have since visited a number of other worlds, but we decided to colonize this one. We still live in the same scattering of weather gray shacks, airstream trailers, recycled chicken coops, and mail-order yurts, only a bit more spread out and considerably more relaxed. We're still dependent on your world for many things, from coffee to books to computers. And in fact, we have no inclination of cutting ourselves off like anchorites and merely scampering into a dream world. We intend to spread the word. The colonization of new worlds, even an infinity of them, can never act as a panacea for the ills of consensus reality, only as a palliative. We have always taken our diseases with us to each new frontier. Everywhere we go, we exterminate aborigines and battle with our weapons of law and order against the chaos of reality. But this time, we believe the affair will go differently. Because this time, the journey outward can only be made simultaneously with the journey inward. And because this bootstrap trick can only be attained by a consciousness which, to a significant degree, has overcome itself. 
liberated itself from self-sickness and realized itself. Not that we think ourselves saints or try to behave morally or imagine ourselves a super race absolved from good and evil. Simply, we like to consider ourselves awake when we're awake, sleeping when we sleep. We enjoy good health. We have learned that desire demands the other just as it demands the self. We see no end to growth while life lasts. No cessation of unfolding, of continual outpouring of form from chaos. We're moving on, nomads of the dimensions. Sometimes we feel almost satisfied. At other times, terrified. Meanwhile, our agents of chaos remain behind to set up ICS courses, distribute Moorish Orthodox literature, a major mask for our propaganda, to subvert and evade our enemies. We haven't spoken yet of our enemies. Indeed, there remains much we have not said. This text, disguised as a sort of New Age vacation brochure, must fall silent at this point, satisfied that it has embedded within itself enough clues for its intended readers. We're already halfway to Ong's hat in any case, but not enough for those with little faith to follow. Chaos never died. Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now please don't ask why, no one quite knows the reason. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. But whatever the reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve, hating the Who's, staring down from his cave with a sour, grinchy frown at the warm, lighted windows below in their town. For he knew every Who down in Whoville beneath was busy now hanging a mistletoe wreath. And they're hanging their stockings, he snarled with a sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas. It's practically here. Then he growled with his Grinch fingers nervously drumming. I must find some way to stop Christmas from coming. For tomorrow, he knew, all the Who girls and boys would wake bright and early. They'd rush for their toys. And then, oh, the noise, oh, the noise, 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 noise. That's one thing he hated. The noise, 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 noise. Then the Who's, young and old, would sit down to a feast. And they'd feast, and they'd feast, and they'd feast, 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 feast. They would feast on Who pudding and rare Who roast beast, which was something the Grinch couldn't stand in the least. And then they'd do something he liked least of all. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, would stand close together with Christmas bells ringing. They'd stand hand in hand, and the who's would start singing. They'd sing, and they'd sing, and they'd sing, 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 sing. And the more the Grinch thought of this who Christmas sing, the more the Grinch thought, I must stop this whole thing. Why, for 53 years I've put up with it now, I must stop this Christmas from coming, but how? Then he got an idea, an awful idea. The Grinch got a wonderful, awful idea. 
I know just what to do. The Grinch laughed in his throat, and he made a quick Santa Claus hat and a coat. And he chuckled and clucked, what a great Grinchy trick. With this coat and this hat, I look just like St. Nick. All I need is a reindeer. The Grinch looked around. But since reindeer are scarce, there was none to be found. Did that stop the old Grinch? No, the Grinch simply said. If I can't find the reindeer, I'll make one instead. So he called his dog Max. Then he took some red thread and he tied a big horn on the top of his head. Then he loaded some bags and some old empty sacks on a ramshackle sleigh and he hitched up old Max. Then the Grinch said, giddy up, and the sleigh started down toward the homes where the Who's lay a snooze in their town. All the windows were dark, quiet snow filled the air. All the Who's were all dreaming, sweet dreams without care. When he came to the first little house on the square, this is stop number one, the old Grinchy Claus hissed, and he climbed to the roof, empty bags in his fist. Then he slid down the chimney, a rather tight pinch. But if Santa could do it, then so could the Grinch. He got stuck only once for a moment or two. Then he stuck his head out of the fireplace flue, where the little who stockings all hung in a row. These stockings, he grinned, are the first things to go. Then he slithered and slunk with a smile most unpleasant around the whole room, and he took every present Pop guns and bicycles, roller skates, drums, checkerboards, tricycles, popcorn, and plums. Then he stuffed them in bags. Then the Grinch, very nimbly, stuffed all the bags, one by one, up the chimney. Then he slunk to the icebox. He took the Who's feast. He took the Who pudding. He took the roast beast. He cleaned out that icebox as quick as a flash. Why, that Grinch even took their last can of Who hash. Then he stuffed all the food up the chimney with glee. And now, grinned the Grinch, I will stuff up the tree. The Grinch grabbed the tree and he started to shove. And he heard a small sound like the coo of a dove. He turned around fast and he saw a small Who. Little Cindy Lou Who, who was not more than two. The Grinch had been caught by this tiny Who daughter who got out of bed for a cup of cold water. She stared at the Grinch and said, Santa Claus, why? Why are you taking our Christmas tree? Why? But you know that old Grinch was so smart and so slick, he thought up a lie and he thought it up quick. Why, my sweet little tot, the fake Santa Claus lied. There's a light on this tree that won't light on one side. Uh, so I'm taking it home to my workshop, my dear. I'll fix it up there, then I'll bring it back here. And his fib fooled the child. Then he patted her head, and he got her a drink, and he sent her to bed. And when Cindy Lou Who went to bed with her cup, he went to the chimney and stuck the tree up. Then the last thing he took was the log for their fire. Then he went up the chimney himself, the old liar. On their walls he left nothing but hooks and some wire. And the one speck of food that he left in the house was a crumb that was even too small for a mouse. 
then he did the same thing to the other whose houses, leaving crumbs much too small for the other whose mouses. It was quarter past dawn, all the who's still abed, all the who's still a snooze when he packed up his sled, packed it up with their presents, their ribbons, their wrappings, the tags and the tinsel, the trimmings, the trappings. 3,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip top to dump it. Poo poo to the who's, he was grinchishly humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the who's down in Whoville will all cry boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, the sound sounded merry. It couldn't be so, but it was merry, very. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And the minute his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light. And he brought back the toys and the food for the feast. And he, he himself, the Grinch carved the roast beast. Happy holidays, New Jersey is the world. It's Jody from Bergen County. In this cold season, when it gets dark at about 2 p.m., one thing that has always warmed my heart is the annual family drive to see the Christmas lights. I did this with my mom growing up in our Ford Pinto, our Plymouth Duster, our GMC Hornet, or our Chevy Caprice Classic, whichever mildly dangerous car we were driving at the time. We had our favorite houses that we would visit every year, and today I'd like to tell you about two of them. I lived in a few different parts of Bergen County between birth and leaving for New York City when I was 23. I spent the first four years of my life in Hackensack, the next eight in Saddlebrook, spent my high school years in Glenrock, and then lived in Ramsey during college. For those of you that know Bergen County, you know there's actually quite a bit of variation in economic class across those towns. 
at least when I was growing up in the 1980s, Saddlebrook and Hackensack were very working class, as was my family. Glenrock, not so much. The wealth disparity from one side of the county to the other was pretty stark. The two houses I remember most clearly from that time that we would visit around Christmas kind of landed at these polar opposites of my county. The first house, a little cape near Washington School in Saddlebrook, would be fully buried in lights every year. But even better, its tiny lawn would be absolutely covered by handmade cutouts of various Disney figures and cartoon characters. From what I remember, and I could be wrong about this, the man who owned this little house made them all himself out of plywood and paint and would create a few new ones each year based on that year's most popular characters. For example, the year the Cabbage Patch Kids were huge, I think he added a Cabbage Patch Kid or two to the lawn. He also played Christmas music on a tinny old speaker that hung from the archway over the path to his door. We would drive by every year when I was a kid in Saddlebrook, and while the house was tiny and there was no long line of cars waiting to see it, it was definitely a highlight of the trip for me. Once I got older and I moved to Glenrock, I found out about the Elvis house. I would still drive back to Saddlebrook to see that little cape as it was only 20 minutes away, but I would also make the drive 20 minutes in the other direction to see the Elvis house in Mawa. This place was huge. The guy that owned it, I don't think he still does, was an Elvis impersonator named Tony Destro, and he called his house a mini Graceland. I've done some internet research on Tony, and I've pulled out some interesting facts for you guys. Tony grew up in North Bergen, the child of a janitor and a seamstress, and played his guitar on street corners with his friends as a kid. His band even cut a record called Just Give Our Love a Chance in 1965, which maybe we can dig up. Once he graduated high school, though, he and his whole band went into the service. He spent 11 months serving in the Army in Vietnam, and when he came home, the music scene had changed. Led Zeppelin was now the most popular band in the country. While Tony kept playing music, he eventually became the owner of a medical recruiting service and joined the working world. He still performed in his spare time as part of a group called the Bowery Boys and, of course, as an Elvis impersonator. A few more interesting things about Tony... When he married his second wife, Shawnee, in 1984, the ceremony was staged around the pond in the backyard of his Mawa house as a scene from the movie Blue Hawaii, in which Presley's character serenades his bride, strumming a ukulele on a raft. According to an NJ.com article from 2009, they had rescue dogs named Gidget, Chachi, Carmine, Vito, and Fonzie, macaws named Rocky and Peanut, a guinea pig named Peach, cockatoos named Fabian and Myra, and dozens of ducks and geese that would live on the pond. They also had goats named Lucy and Ethel, but those were donated to a zoo. I couldn't find out which one, maybe Turtleback. I also found out that he is the owner of a clump of Elvis's hair that he keeps under glass at home. The most recent information I found about him was from LinkedIn, where he posted in all caps about working for Donald Trump in his Atlantic City casino in the image of Elvis show. Yes, this is something of a milkshake duck situation, but I refuse to let it ruin this for me. I knew none of this as a kid, but driving to the Elvis house in Mawa at Christmas was an event in the late 90s and early 2000s. Once you got within about a mile, you would see the line of cars. Some years, the local fire department would set up on the street with the boot out for donations. The wait was long, but it was worth it. Once you turned the corner onto Victoria Lane, the street his house was on, you would see his Graceland lit up with about 19 million bulbs. I am not exaggerating, that is the actual number. On his roof were mannequins of Marilyn Monroe, Charlie Chaplin, the RCA dog, Santa and his sleigh, and of course, Elvis. There was a floodlit Statue of Liberty in the middle of his pond, along with Father Christmas in a gazebo. 
Speakers from the roof blared Elvis Christmas music, most likely driving his neighbors insane. He referred to the project as like Rockefeller Center, but bigger and without having to go to New York. The approximate annual cost, according to NewJersey.com, of this display was about $100,000 per year. Destro stopped lighting up his house in 2008 because of the economic crash, but I don't know if he ever brought it back. Maybe someone from the New Jersey is the world family from Bergen County can let us know. And with that, I wish you all a warm and happy holiday season. May you be with loved ones, eat good food, and send me bagels up here in Rhode Island. Much love. This is Jeremy Schneider from NJ.com, a.k.a. the guy who tried to eat a one-pound mozzarella stick and barely lived to tell the tale. Happy holidays to New Jersey's the world. Hope everyone has a very happy holiday. Hope everyone gets mozzarella sticks. They don't have to be one pound. Even a regular-sized mozzarella stick is a pretty terrific gift. No, no eggnog, no Christmas trees, mozzarella sticks. This is New Jersey. Marinara sauce, too. Fine. Marinara sauce, mozzarella sticks. Happy holidays. This is Jeremy Schneider from NJ.com, a.k.a. the guy who tried to eat a one-pound mozzarella stick and almost passed out at the table because of it. Uh, happy holidays to the whole New Jersey is the world family. Uh, for the next hour, I'm going to tell you why Applegate's is inferior to Holston's. Sorry, Chris, it's true. I, I worked at Applegate's. It's great. It's wonderful. It's not Holston's. Can you imagine the final scene of Sopranos being at Applegate's? Absolutely not. They don't have booths. They don't have music. How would they play Don't Stop Believing on the jukebox? There is no jukebox. And that's beside the point. The ice cream is just better. The ambiance, I mean, you tell me. You tell me that a duster sundae doesn't hit different than any ice cream you've ever had. I digress. Hostess has great Christmas gifts, too. The, the chocolate, the uh, whatever. Happy holidays, for real. So we're watching the Christmas Carol. Which one is this? You said 1938. This is the 1938 version. Uh, Nikki Bonaduce's favorite version of a Christmas Carol. Black and white, not redone. And looking for the true meaning of Christmas. Let's set the uh, mood here. We're at Mike B's underground. Uh, abode somewhere in central Jersey. The Christmas tree is up. The cat is clawing at the lower branches. Ebenezer Scrooge is now meeting Marley for the first time. Marley's ghost has like a very, uh, a very like early 80s punk rock thing going on. He's got like a bandana tied around his head and he's got a lot of chains. He's got the inverted bandana. In, right, under the jaw bandana, and he's got a lot of, lot of chains wrapped around his body. Got his reading glasses over his brow.
I'm kind of into that idea though, like Scrooge has on a sleeping cap. I don't know why that is not a thing anymore. I think back in the day it was like more for uh, keeping your head warm. Yeah, it's to when keep you, were you sleeping, warm, right? but why did we stop doing that? Because we have uh, temperature control. I still sleep with uh, things on my head because I'm bald and my head gets cold at night. I do not, but I'm kind of thinking like I might want to get myself like an actual sleeping cap like Scrooge has with like a tassel on it. Well, I always remember from uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas that the cap was always really long. And I always wondered like, I guess maybe you took that part wrapped around your neck to keep you warm. like the weird um so he calls for the neighborhood watch and he's in london right yeah he's in london and so they're not cops so the first police force i do know was established in london i don't think at this time it would have been like completely widespread where you could have just grabbed a cop off the street yeah he's literally like goes out to the window and yells out and they all come in there Obviously, larger fellows, and they're probably lucky that they have the night shift. They're probably drinking uh, port and brandy, and they have giant muskets. Almost no, like, they're just like, giant. They're giant, like like rods, like poles. Yeah, basically, like you know, truncheons. Like, oh, just I guess to use the club. Here comes Marley sneaking back in with his chains. I like saying to Mike D, I finally realized why he has the uh, handkerchief wrapped around his head that way. It's like inverted, not around his brow. It's because I believe he died from an infected tooth. Because he didn't want to pay to go to the dentist. That's it. I don't think Marley was uh, as cheap as Ebenezer. But like a good friend, he comes back to try and save Ebenezer's soul. Would you come back and try and save my soul, Mike D? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I still don't think I can carry all those chains. Oh, that's like part of his uh, torment through eternity. <laughs> I'd be chained. Actually, I would just be strapped to, like, piles of books. Definitely. <laughs> I'd have, like, 6,000 yeah. heavy art books I'd have to, like, drag with me. What would, what would I have? What is, uh... What? torment am I going to have to suffer in the afterlife I don't know you don't have any like particular thing that you've ever hoarded yeah I don't know that's a good one Maybe I think be... you'd more be doomed to be like a wanderer yeah I'd be yeah. I'd be doomed yeah maybe but I like wandering so I guess it's not that bad but... They stuck having his reading glasses over his eyes and not wearing them, they're just on his forehead. I always promise to haunt all my friends when I die, anyway, in like a good way, not like I scare the crap out of them. Like a <laughs> You'd be like a, a good haunting. 
like I would only show myself when uh, my friends were being intimate to make them completely uncomfortable. I always think of more like a like a Return of the Jedi haunt thing. When like yeah, something like, good happens, you just kind of like appear yeah, like in the like, background, like nodding in the nod, background. Yeah, absolutely. Or if I had the ability, I would come back and give you like the winning lottery tickets. Winning lot, but only for the pick three or pick four. <laughs> only <laughs> like, you're not allowed to give like the big jackpots. You're only allowed to give like the pick three, maybe a a low jackpot. The rules of the afterlife five. say I can only give you the pick, you the can pick only three pick number. Straight or box. You can't give no them, wheel. No wheel. No front pairs, back pairs. Some people like the Dalai Lama can give you wheels and pairs, but the average person but he, from yeah. the afterlife can only give you. Uh, can only you can't make victory. enough money. You can't win enough money to affect change in the timeline. That's how. Yeah, they. You judge where you are in the afterlife is what lotto numbers you can communicate back to Earth. You can only give two of the three numbers, <laughs> or you can only give like the Powerball number, so you win two bucks. Also, putting curtains around your bed. That's a good thing. I think that was also I, for being freezing cold also. All this stuff is for freezing cold. I mean, yeah, I think that yeah. there was no central heating. Your yeah, house was heated by fireplaces. inefficient and sucked. I mean, I love London. London's like my favorite city. I've yeah. spent a ton of time there. And even now, it's damp and poorly heated, you know? It's like being in London is like being cold and miserable all the time. I mean, I... As much as I love it, too, but... I stayed, used to stay at this one hotel for work, and it was in uh, in Notting Hill in London. And uh, But it was like basically like four Georgian row houses that were converted together. And the weird thing, this is, I swear to God, I went in and I checked in. There was like a weird guy at the check-in desk. And I'm like, okay, great. And then like later on, I went to like the restaurant in the hotel, like a little restaurant because I had no time. And it was the same guy working the restaurant. He was my waiter and cooking the food. And then, like, every function, I went to the gym. He was working the gym, and it was one guy. But that place was so damp. There was just, like, mold growing out of everything. And it was, like, a pretty expensive hotel. Oh, now we've got the ghost of Christmas past. Yeah. Oh, and she's super, super pretty. And she's wearing, like, a weird, like... Like a nurse's hat with like a Christmas tree yeah. star attached to the top. I wonder who would come back for my ghost of Christmas past. It would be like, uh. school nurse from Fairmont or Miss Helen the music teacher the ghost of my Christmas past would probably be a be a nun from North Nork (laughs) but like was suddenly nice in the afterlife because they were definitely not nice in the actual life they probably I would see the uh, Catholic nun being the uh, Ghost of Christmas future because it's usually always like a, a messenger of death. It always seems. I gotta say, Scrooge and the Ghost of Christmas Past are flying over London, 
And for 1938, that was a pretty solid I'm, I'm special you, effect. Even like uh, on, when they're knocking on the door and uh, Marley's face is in there. On the knocker. Oh, look, this is the first time uh, Scrooge is smiling. Joe. Joe, Tommy, that carriage is overloaded. You've got like 40 kids hanging off the We're back of that. Die. It's funny. So Dickens, he was he affluent. Or? Well, so when he was growing up, his uh, his his father, and then I think at one point his father and also his mother and brother were all sent to like the workhouse, which is basically like you ran up a bunch that's, of debts yeah. and you couldn't pay it. There's and then they sent you. That's and, why. Like I mean, David Copperfield is basically like his autobiography. And then later on, he became... I mean, he was one of the most famous people in the world, you know, when when uh, this. And, and he had, like, you know, he went back and forth with money, but was, like, generally eventually well got, like, yeah, generally got, like, very, very well off. He made almost no money from The Christmas Carol when he wrote it. Because he he spent so much money because he wanted to make the printing of it really fancy with like oh. colors and stuff like that. So uh, he when they even though it sold out like instantly, he made like very little money from it initially. Does anybody still get like proceeds from Dickens, or is it considered like just? The, I'm like, pretty sure I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty sure that that's old enough that it's. Just in the public domain. Because it's always like on those. Yeah, a lot of that stuff is in the public domain now. Um, Is there any author now that's uh, considered in the same stratosphere uh, besides like, you know, the Harry Potters and that crap? Or who do you think in the future will be remembered as much as Dickens and or referenced throughout? Stephen King. Stephen King is exactly not exactly, but like I very similar to Charles Dickens, I think, and people are gonna be reading Stephen King for like hundreds of years if we don't <laughs> knock ourselves off as a species. Yeah, yeah, right? Because that. it's it's the same kind of stuff, like just really good stories. Good and evil. Any yeah, good and evil. Anybody can read them. Like you don't have to you know, like Charles Dickens books, they're they're long, but like and now it's a little tougher with some of the language stuff, but they were made for, like, the average person walking the street. And just like, you know, Stephen King is just, like, super great, entertaining stuff to read. Are any Dickens uh, novels on the banned book list? Not that I know of, but I only think that's because 
the far right people don't read Dickens. Well, and also the stuff like that's in Dickens that's really subversive. People don't get like he has one character called, you know, like so like Master was what you called a kid in Victorian times, like Mister, Mrs. and right, like, like kids even, were Master. Even formally now, like if you're uh, addressing a letter, right? Right to master. master. So and he has a character in one of his books called Master Bates, and he always has his hands in his pocket. And it's like if people like you know like a lot of people just don't clock it when they read that, but it's like oh Master Bates, he's got his hands in his pocket. Also, the, uh, what was the name of the kid in, uh, Toys? Was Master Bates. Remember? Remember Toys, the, the movie with, yeah, uh, what's I remember his name? Richard uh, Pryor. Richard Pryor. I think. Unless I'm totally wrong. Plus, also, uh, the influence of, uh, Tiny Tim on Christmas. I mean,. I, I how many ver- like there's a five million versions of like he kind of invented Christmas, like Christmas wasn't really like a I mean it was starting to become a big thing in Victorian England, but it, but he kind of solidified it. It wasn't a big thing before that. Like I mean so obviously it was a religious just holiday. To like, but, yeah, you went to church or whatever. Yeah, but besides that, what was it more of an influence of uh, what's it, the? Uh, I think you have like. Dickens, like not so much Germany, but like more north, like uh, Scandinavian. Yeah, Scandinavian, like this, even though. Yeah, I think it's American advertising that actually like oh. made Christmas yeah, into like Santa Claus doesn't historically look. Like, no, he's fat, a Greek, even an old yeah, he's a Greek saint. You know? Yeah, well, he's, or, a, he's well, he's, yeah, he's recognized by. Or was he? Uh, he was he, Turkish. He wasn't Turkish. He was from like a different region, but. He became I, he became a bishop, but he was known for like he, helping the poor. But he's also Saint Nicholas is also the patron saint of like sailors for protection. Um, and and he was the patron saint of children because where he lived, wherever yeah. that was, there was a huge famine, and a bunch of these people took a bunch of kids and they killed them and were smoking them and turning them into pork. And he appeared and was like, oh, this is no good. And he had a miracle and brought them back to life. Right, I think. I think, but I know he was also for, um, as archbishop, he he came from a family of, like, affluence, whatever, and then became, you know, went into, you know, the religious path or whatever. But he was, like you said, you put your stockings out and, like, put gifts in there, whatever. But also always about children and um, and gifting and like taking. I think definitely the. Uh, I'm rambling. Interesting. Then we're going stream of consciousness. With pots and pans. <laughs> but now we're giving you uh, cultural and historical perspectives uh, on the Christmas ghost. Uh, One of my favorite ghosts. A ghost of Christmas present. If I, who actually looks like the most Santa Claus figure and also is portrayed as protecting children. He looks like WWE wrestler Mankind. 
Yeah, but cheery and like a hairy chest, big open robe. He's my guy. I'm 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 with the ghost of Christmas present. Definitely, he's the best. Look, he's got like a nice like ermine, ermine trimmed like robe. He's got. I a, want that robe. Yeah, he's got a big horn. He's got like a. He's always eating and drinking. Holly leaf wreaths on his yeah. head. Yeah, he's got a nice wreath. This is the best. Where are we? We are. Oh, oh the John Falderton Bakery. Go there all the time. Save your pennies this Christmas. No poking. He waves his horn. When I die, the universe will put me in a position to spread good cheer with a horn. You'd be a great ghost of Christmas present. You would. Definitely. Uh, legit. I'm just, that's going to be my new occupation in real life. I'm going to be the human of uh, Christmas present. You should go right now and change your LinkedIn <laughs> to occupation, ghost of Christmas present. Everybody looks for Nikki Bonaduce, uh, former surveyor turned ghost of Christmas present. Oh, that's nice. He like waves his magic horn and the two of them two two former enemies go to the pub together. Absolutely. I'm not breaking out into Handel's Messiah. I'm the king of angels. You know why he's so happy? Because they haven't gotten married yet. (laughs) I thought he was so happy because he had on a bow tie, which is so large that he could fly across the English Channel. He is very dapper. He's just waiting for his... uh, Uncle that dies so can inherit his fortune. Bah humbug. His resemblance to Mick Foley is uncanny. uncanny. Absolutely. <laughs> I think Scrooge is coming around. Too late though, Scrooge. Is it? Is it ever too late? No, it's never too late. That's the message of this. Yeah, that's definitely the Christian undertone of, uh, maybe not just a Christian, but I guess, maybe, I guess so. This poor bastard just lost his job. Carries his, uh, crippled son to church on Christmas Eve. 
It's interesting. It's just him and his son. Knows. Yeah, where's so the rest of one, the... Well, this is like one of their traditions. Where he knows, like... What did he have in his hand? It was like a plum or something. Was it or was it an orange? It was, yeah, some... Oranges were oranges big were at Victorian... Big yeah, the big yeah, Victorian like... Christmas thing. Because they were rare. Yeah. Well, not they were, they were expensive. Yeah, plus it's like, you know, where were you getting it from to get it to England? And, uh... Right, some people had hothouses, but even that but was... But you weren't growing oranges in, like, anywhere in the northern uh, hemisphere. I think people at hothouses could. You think so? Yeah. Huh. No, there was, because when you... But like... <laughs> when you read Jane Austen novels... A lot of the really rich people had orangeries, which were like so glass citrus, in. Like yeah, they could those grow beautiful rooms that were. But you had to be real rich to, yeah. you know, it wasn't like Bob Cratchit wasn't growing oranges in in you know Shoreditch. See, everybody was eating seasonally back then. What are you doing, Bob Cratchit? Oh, you know, we're eating seasonally, farm to table. <laughs> oh, by the way, I just got shit canned by your uncle. <laughs> And uh, we're going to be out in the street. Now, this is something kids have been doing throughout history, sliding on the streets on their feet, standing up. We still did that. Yeah. I've done it accidentally (laughs) this year (laughs) in the recent past. I actually threw my uh, back out doing it last year on the Asbury Park boardwalk. There's actual footage of that. I, uh, where was I? I was in Manhattan the other day, and I did like a full Scooby-Doo on a oh patch of ice, like, like feet up in the air. You know, other people asking me if I was okay. Yeah, last winter, that snowstorm, we were in Asbury Park, and uh, I was walking down the street, and I was helping somebody get their car out, and the wind blew so hard after that, I did a Scooby-Doo, went straight up in the air, landed flat on my back on top of a shovel, and then I couldn't walk for three days after that. Then you got up and stepped on another shovel and it hit you in the face and then you turned the other direction and stepped on another shovel. It was like like Elmer Fudd. She was a pretty cool chick to be doing this back in the day. It was racy. If you were... Oh, that would be... You would be expelled from society for falling into a snowbank with your fiancé. 100%. Well, there's probably horse shit all over the place. There was definitely not only that. People just flank, flung their their Garbage. poop and well, yeah, piss so out the window. Point, they had a lot. Uh, so, some was it yeah still outhouses or I mean no, it was chamber pots. Some places in London by this point had like a version of like indoor like plumbing. A, yeah. If you had a lot of like money, you had indoor plumbing. Kind of thing. But otherwise, you just flung your your you know your poop into the street yeah, like. I'm just glad I didn't live back then. If you had a lot of money, it was nice. Yeah, but you could be like, you could cut your finger and die from an infection. True. Medicine was in its infancy still. Or they would like, you know, probe you and bleed you to death. Should make a new version of the Christmas Carol with like, like Elon Musk or, or no, with like Putin. Ah, Putin's too. 
too pure evil. Even yeah, he's evil. too evil. You need someone who's like... Elon like, Musk would be a good Scrooge. Like, uh, Trump. Like, do a Trump version of uh, A Christmas Carol. But in the end, he just winds up doing something terrible. He ends up even more... more just... <laughs> he turns Bob Kratz's house into a boutique hotel. And then makes him work in it. That <laughs> makes it fucking. <laughs> he exploits his uh, son's handicaps. Do you get this ability for, for Tiny Tim? I'm gonna pass a law so you can't get it anymore. I won't get this ability. Oh, Bob Kratz has got a nice family. He does. They got applesauce. He's pouring some tea. Yeah. He went all in. Got the big goose. Later on, they'll find him hanging in the closet. (laughs) (laughs) How is old Scrooge? I think that's his daughter. Oh, is that his daughter? Yeah. He's definitely been busy. He's got a lot of kids. Sacked on Christmas Eve. And he got like had to work till like six thirty. What's he drinking? Punch. Oh. That was a big, big Victorian thing. So what was typically brandy or it was a lot of stuff. Whatever yeah. you could put in there. Basically, it was just it was like much booze as you could pour into everything. Oh my gosh. There's recipes for Victorian punches. You can look them up and like they're makeable now, you know. There's like lots of like there's been spice and shit. They were trying to cover up the, t- yeah. <laughs> the like taste of And th- drink anything but the water. Yes, drink anything but the water. I'm not a big uh, waterfowl guy, though. I've never had a good tasting goose or duck, except for, like, Peking duck. I don't know that I've ever had either one of those. I do remember one year for my birthday, my brother cooked, got a goose. And remember that? I it was... And it was like... I think several people mangled by a butcher with a pocket knife. Yes. Fatty birds are tough to cook. What's your best Christmas memory from? Either your childhood or uh, adulthood. 
Was it a specific gift? Was it like... Or just the wonderment? Or like the... Like looking back now for me, it's like I used to love that anticipation and... Uh, and I can't tell you how many times I thought like there was reindeer on my roof. Oh, yeah. I think for me... And also the threat of Santa Claus uh, pre-Christmas to uh, keep you in check. The fear of him seeing you all the time. I think for me it would always be be Christmas Eve at my grandparents. That's the part that I remember the most. Like when I was much younger, they had giant, big traditional Italian Christmas. I mean, yeah. every single relative of Everybody's every there. And I mean, you'd been to my, oh yeah, you know their house, tiny house, yeah, tiny yeah. little house. And you know, it was to the point where if you were at the far side around the table, you couldn't get out. Like you, you, like, you, you, you're like staying. this is where you're staying for the entire entire evening, um, so those I remember. And then at, at a certain point, maybe when I was like ten or eleven, my grandmother was like, "I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Nobody helps." And so, and then I just remember those also, like still, you know, just our closer family with big, like, you know, homemade pizza, macaroni, you know, galamad, the whole thing. Like, that's what I remember. I miss that. Yeah, definitely, like, uh, all my great uncles and everything, we used to do Christmas Eve. And it was the one time of year, like you said, everybody would be there. All your relatives. And back then, like, everybody smoked cigarettes. Yeah. And, like, my one side of my family was big scotch drinkers. And I was, like, the young bartender slash drink food getter. And they would play cards and get, like, hammered. And there would be, like, a million people in the house. And then we used to, like... All the cousins get together, go downstairs, and like you know, do things that cousins do, and run around and like get into trouble and beat each other up and all that good stuff. But yeah, now it's like, <clears throat> I guess I just miss like uh, having everybody in your family to like together. But yeah, jeez, everybody smoked. My goodness. Oh yeah, the smoking was just a. A thing. I mean, I remember when you could smoke, you know, on airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I don't remember. I don't think I ever. I don't remember that, but I do remember. I guess smoking at the diner. I remember, yeah, diner and restaurants everywhere. They're gonna play blind man's bluff. And then, but first they're going to drink a toast. Definitely. They're toasting Uncle Scrooge, and now they're blindfolding. It's getting a little kinky in Victorian Christmas yeah, Carol. for sure. Blindfold and grope. <laughs> a popular Victorian game. These were like the uh, like the trust funders. Because the real affluent people wouldn't do this. And they have a make out for it. 
Like he actually had like a prearranged curtain back there. Yeah, he's like, I got this figure. It's like I got this curtain. Well, everybody else is uh, blindfolded. I'm gonna bring you back here. Like I, I had this curtain installed by a, by a workman from, by a Cockney workman from East London this morning. I have the perfect plan. This time everybody puts their blindfolds on except for us. Except for the two. And then, uh, oh, where did they go? Wildly run around groping. Look at him. Scrooge looks kind of like weirdly inappropriate. <laughs> I think this is also like there's some like prosthetics on him, but like it's mostly his own head. Uh oh. Scrooge has suddenly been transported to a very gothic scene where he's in a in a grove of gnarled trees. It's foggy. The sky is very stark. Very he's still wearing his his sleeping cap up, oh, and here he comes. This is like look at this. a beautiful, beautiful scene. Uh oh, it's my guy, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. That's how I always refer to him as the ghost of, not the ghost of Christmas future, I, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. I was thinking future when you said that. That's much more uh, eloquent. Well, the future is like undefined, but yet to come is like yeah. very possibility. Right. Exa- exactly. Exactly. Could, could happen. Right now, you're effing shit up. to his money. He hasn't left it to me. That's all I know. I probably wanted to be buried with it. I'm not giving it to my nephew. And all he would say was, Bah, humbug. Bah, humbug. You're such a rotten bastard. They come to your funeral and then they talk shit on you right outside. <laughs> That's it. Nobody cares about you. It does such a good job, though, of making you feel bad for Scrooge. You know? Yeah. Damn. He's looking at his own body. Nobody even cared enough to make a death mask. I think I'm going to bring that back. Death mask? I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to start a death mask uh, company. I think I may have talked about this before. but We're going to work with the, the uh, guy from uh, Great Refinery. To make concrete death masks? Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd be in for that. They're like, okay, they're dead, so we don't have to worry about killing them if we suffocate them, but... Cool. Instead of plaster, if you had a concrete one, you wouldn't have to worry about like breaking. 
Or whichever one of us dies first will every year on the other one's birthday will wear the concrete if death mask. If my head is still intact after I die, please make a, a death mask. I'll have uh, my lawyer write that up. I think that'd be like cool. I mean, maybe it's morbid, but. There was always a thing like people would take pictures in front of like uh, dead relatives that died. So, yeah, I is have. Is that like. I'll show you something. I always thought that was strange. I'm like, I don't know if it's like a Mediterranean thing, but I mean, they used to have wakes. No, no, it's a, a, it's too, a huge you know? American thing, too. Um, so I subscribe like to feels... this Patreon called the Thanatos Archive, which is amazing. Oh, and cool. all it is is uh, post-mortem pictures. People like, um, look, like, like pose, death wow. pictures. Whoa. This, That's this, like her sitting in a chair? Yeah. This guy. Um, My gosh, looks like she's alive. He, he goes around and he's like archiving and collecting all this stuff because people don't even know what it is and it's all disappearing. Wow. But it's a really cool... Um, Thing and he just he you know he's been doing this but for years and years. Like posed, I meant like you know people like standing by a casket. But no, there's it. some of that stuff too. But yeah, Thanatos Archive is amazing. But it's all cool, all that kind of stuff. Read that terrible. Uh, there's like an article about George Washington, like the last. Um, a few days before he died. Oh, and, here like, you go. The, Death masks. And like what they were doing to like try and like help him. Like terrible. Enemas, uh, bleeding. Um, what else did they do? Like making him like puke and all kinds of terrible things. He was like tormented before he died. But he has a death mask, doesn't he? I think that was the time period. I kind of remember. Also, Christmas reminds me of uh, Handel's Messiah. I used to wake up. My father would blast this on the stereo and be singing it on Sunday mornings. Moved from West Orange. You're very cultured. I don't know about that.
on a side note. Mike D's getting a drink. Uh, Merry holidays to everybody. Uh, spread love and joy. Be good to your fellow human beings. And if you encounter the ghost of Christmas present and it's Bonaduce, you know you're in good hands. Yeah, definitely. It's like, we're going <laughs> to go around, we're going to travel. I'll be drinking out of a, uh, horn, of, oh. a horn of Plenty. I think that's what, yeah. If I can be used after death, uh, put me in a, uh, I know, uh, Guardian Angel. What was that bad movie from the 80s when he comes back after drag racing? Oh, and he winds uh, up, like, protecting The his... Wraith. Was it? No, no, it was like a comedy. Yeah, yeah. no. What's it called? The car one is the one where, no. I thought it was called The Wraith, and every time the car crashes, My... there's that one part that's left over, and he comes back to Oh, life. no, that was good, too. Yeah. This one was... This one was about actual guardian angel here. And I think he comes back and he winds up... Oh, no, wait, don't you mean Weekend at Bernie's? No, gosh. (laughs) Good, yeah. Definitely classic. Screwed, shaved, and everything. He's loving life. Never a Marley. He's got, like, a giant... A goose? Buy me the biggest goose in all the land. Never too late to. Uh... Charles Dickens took the name of Scrooge. It was Ebenezer Scroggy, who was like apparently like a pretty well-known, like British military figure, and was extremely embarrassed that he was repurposed as Scrooge. Was he a bad person? Or no, was he, he was just. It was just like I guess. Did a good, they ever communicated about? That? He was just a good name, Ebenezer Scroggy. Wonder if it like ruined him, like. Uh... Crazy Eddie guy that played Crazy Eddie. Poor Crazy Eddie. Remember? Like, yeah, no, I mean, I. The guy was tormented afterwards because they thought he was like the real guy that, you know. There's nothing that uh, Jerry Carroll was his name. There's nothing I want to talk about more than Crazy Eddie. You know, we'll talk about Crazy Eddie. I always, well, I always remember the Crazy Eddie like Christmas commercials. Yeah, his Christmas is insane. Like, he'd have like a hat on, like. He's got a lot of money. Start hanging out with Ebenezer now. Macking on all the chicks in the room. What's the secret, Fred?
He was about to kiss Uncle Scrooge, and it got real awkward. It did. It did. <laughs> he was like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, I've ever had that uh, situation where you're expecting one uh, social interaction, and it goes a different way. He's doing all right, though. He said he couldn't afford to get married, but he's got a coach and four. If you had four, saying, a coach like, with four horses, you had some loot. Well, figure he has the other half of whatever. Right, Scrooge's parents, parents right? yeah. Because the sister died, and, and that's the only person that ever showed many love, so. <laughs> Scrooge, he's, like, he's got fucking he loony. He remembered that he fired me. Like he's lost Save? his fucking mind. <laughs> Save our children! <laughs> Scrooge is killing them in the in the parlor. <laughs> Scrooge, put your pants back on. Oh, he gave them like a nice little wind-up Victorian carousel toy. I would love that thing. Oh, it could... Anything with gears. Do you remember like that fad came back when they used to have the candles underneath the uh, things and like the heat would make them spin? And, yes. Like, yeah. And like you would go into like Macy's or whatever and like they remember they used to have all like the Christmas areas set up and like they'd have like candles they still burning do. in like the stores. But I thought they were so cool, but I guess it like fell out of fashion because people were probably burning. Burning Macy's caught fire every three days. I'll figure it was like commonplace to put like candles on Christmas trees. It's like in every year, people's houses would like burn down. He's giving Bob a raise on Christmas. She's motioning to her head like, have you gone soft in the head, Scrooge? I think Scrooge just might be real lit up. And he's like, yeah, I'll give your kid a job, too. <laughs> like, that's it. I let go. He discovered the opium den. Opium den. Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless go. us. Good Everyone. Best. Tiny Tim is knocking back like a big a big glass of bourbon. It's like ah they watered it down a little bit. Aw, the end. Good film choice, Nick. Definitely. This well this, this is my is favorite great. version. Like I'll watch this the most, but like I I I go through this like Christmas Carol uh, like marathon. And even like the ones I don't like as much, like I'll watch. Ebenezer Scrooge, Reginald Owen. Best name. Tiny Tim, Terry Kilburn. Yeah, I wonder uh, did he act later in life. Can never get out from under the shadow of Tiny Tim. Probably. His parents probably was the thirties. His parents probably stole all his money. Oh, definitely. But like, even the way they spoke, they sounded like. I hope you enjoyed watching the 1938 version of A Christmas Carol yeah, so with Mike D. and Bonaduce. Yeah, sorry for the uh, weird rambling, but I guess that's what it's all about. Uh, hopefully you're sitting around a Yule log and, uh, I don't know, 
enjoying yourself, relaxing, realizing, uh, you know, life is great. And uh, what's the famous line I always say? Uh, I mean, to be cliched, uh, let's say everybody has no wall. Uh, live, love, laugh. Just bad be cliches. Just because Scrooge was a miser, that don't make him a bad guy. Yeah, listen, you know. You gotta do a lot to be a real bad guy or girl. But, so. Realize the good in everybody. It's never too late to change. Uh, positive vibes. To clean slates. Uh, to dirty slates. To dirty slates. To slate if you if you're remodeling. Yeah, definitely slate or even maybe uh, yeah. <laughs> to AC Slater, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. God bless us, everyone. God bless us, everyone.
How you doing, everybody? This is Brian Donahue, longtime New Jersey journalist. Uh, go ahead and put on another log on that fire and sit back while I regale you for the holiday with a little Jersey tranche de vie, or slice of life, a reading of a somewhat inscrutable and often illegible relic of early 20th century journalism that is one of my randomly selected used notebooks from my days as a Star Ledger reporter. Read in its entirety now. This is dated April to June 2005. I'll uh, insert some footnotes for context and clarity when needed. Here we go. Page one. Hired gun in town, Jeffrey Getterman from Atlanta on Menendez. Roberts for mayor, Hoboken Dems. Seven day rule, Wheeling. 10G, Corzine. Lynch. Wolf Marsan, 9 to 11 a.m., ID number 13370, dorm A5 West, A number, footnote, that's an alien number that's given by uh, Department of Homeland Security to foreign nationals, 4214629, Hudson County Correctional Facility, there's a phone number, I must have been going to visit somebody in jail. PJB. All caps, underscores. Footnote, this appears to be Paul J. Byrne. He was an admitted bagman for corrupt Hudson County Executive Bob Janiszewski. Uh, and at this time, he was awaiting uh, sentencing and called me to tell me he was uh, dying, about to die, and wanted to uh, give one more interview. Back to the notebook. I've reached that point in my life where I don't believe. I respect people's rights to religious beliefs. I don't have any. 
when I die, I don't want anyone from... There's some water damage to the notebook. Can't read that. If I had a religious faith, I'd be concerned about dying because I don't think I'd even merit purgatory. I don't see that as something I have to contend with. Three-day shelf life. Day one. Oh, my God. Did you hear about Paul Byrne? Two. Hey, what happens? Is there going to be a wake? Three. Hey, who's going to live in this condo? I don't wind up in a hospital room with the family saying, I don't know, what did he tell you? That puts me at peace. If I really thought about the person that I had to contend with, I'd have surgeries. I don't want to contend with the day of reckoning. In the middle of the river... Ashes spread from the deck of the Peter R. Weiss. That's a ferry, I believe. All I have left is my mind. Not anxious about sentence? Question mark. No. It has nothing to do with anxiety. I'm 59. Eight years. If it ends today, it's okay with me. The cemeteries are full of indispensable people. Pillow, presidential seal, lobbied. That's probably the most important thing I've ever done in my life. You give hope to people. At some point, you metal plate and right leg. How much more can you do? You talk about heart valves and bypass. PJB's not going there. It's terrifying to be laying in the hospital waiting for your results of the last test. I read three newspapers, Star-Ledger, New York Times, Inquirer, newspapers, National Foundation for the Blind. Most important thing when you're sick is to something the anxiety, trying to make it easier for my family. This should involve all of us. People say it's in God's hands, although it isn't. God is too busy. Something in all the somethings in New Jersey. God is too busy to become around all the somethings in New Jersey. God, that's probably a good quote. I wish I could decipher it. I'm scheduling a whole bunch of dinners where I'm not picking up the tab. You got to get ready for this. Spend as much time as you would Choosing a new pair of shoes. One piece of paper would have avoided all this. I didn't hurt anybody, unlike my pal. Next, looks like the next story now. Commission for Interreligious Archdiocese of Newark, Santana. 40% born in a foreign country, third highest uh, count in the U- U.S. in the country. We live together holding high moral principles regardless of faith. We cannot generalize the faith of millions based on the actions of a few. Bishop Thomas Donato, Roman Catholic Episcopal Vicar for Hudson County, Jersey City native. My hope and prayer is to be when we are now and continue to work for the future to strengthen community bonds. We can all live 
together in the country of America. Arab Amer- as Arab Americans, wonderful community and a community within the Arab community. A difficult time earlier this year, Muhammad Yunus, American Muslim Union. A historic time to see, to learn from the people and build ourselves for all. We are all Americans. I mean to get along with. That's what we're here for, right? To get along. Squeo, St. Matthew's Lutheran Church. We have to pledge. Residential pluralism is what God desires for the whole world. Neighbors to better Muslim Orthodox Jews. Temple JC, Hinduism. Religions are many, but religion is one. Mary Sue Colin Farley, Hudson County Brotherhood Sisterhood Association, Director of Campus Ministry at St. Peter's. Anything is possible. The work is hard. Friendships may be unimaginable in other places can happen here. Healy underscored. Footnote, this must be uh, Mayor Jeremiah Healy, then Mayor of Jersey City. 50 languages. Run for mayor. I contacted political infighting that uh, something we are that same outlook that same ritual that same I can't read this is all illegible Shaddad underscored the best the best thing that came out of that was knowing The community, the Muslim community, behaved so well. I'm so proud of it. We held on, held our place, and we know we were not involved. Hudson County Brotherhood Sisterhood Association. Time to get people to learn more about different religions and beliefs. We're not doing it with uh, something who would. Um... Looks like another story here. Now, 1989, came at 14 with parents, drug conviction, 94, nine months, selling coke, distribution, home in 1998, back to Haiti, two years probation in 94, pled guilty. Finished time in 96, served nine months, 331-98, deported to Haiti. Haitian government put me in jail. 21 people, small room, take turns to sleep. 175 pounds, six months, cousin and government, pulled strings, paid money, magistrate. Joined party in 98, Lost election in 2000, went to asylum in Florida, granted asylum, threatened by bulldozed house, Lavalier party, came January 15, 2003, to his home, to Dominican Republic, DR, to Canada, changed in Newark. I don't ever want to be in this country. I was going to Canada. I had no choice but to put up a fight. They want to send me back to Haiti. I was in Canada. If I was in Canada, I'd be on the street right now. Cambridge, Mass. It's terrible. I've been here 28 months. Timothy Block. Three years in jail. Total. Now 30 years old. I don't care if I go to Haiti no matter what happens. Mother is back home. If I end up going back, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I'd rather go to Haiti than stay in jail. I'm just waiting. If they deny me, I'll just go home. Father, sister. I went through hell when I was in Haiti. Wanted to go to Canada to go to school. They were trying to kill me. 
Port-au-Prince, Mashrenko, Mashrenha party member. Left Lavalier election, joined Mashrenha, Mashrenha party. Lavalier party threatened him. Family in Montreal. The judge was going to put me back on the plane. One guy here, four years. African guy, five years. Homeland Security. What's that got to do with me? I'm just trying to get on with my life to get to Canada so I can go to school. I need some money for citizenship. That cost me my whole life. Crack in high school. My life has been down the drain since then. Passaic, 213 to 215. Middlesex, mid-200s. Hudson, 370. Footnote, this means, seems to be me adding up the number of immigrants in detention in New Jersey. NJDHS, 702. Multiple pages of phone numbers and names. I will skip through that to save you that. I was this not... This is Jeremiah Healy again, I believe. There's not a block in JC. There's not a building in JC where you don't have four or five people lined up ready to invest in. It's my job to make sure that continues and that we protect the taxpayers. JH underscored. It's kind of because we did everything we said we were going to do. It's because we have done a solid job. And the city council in this administration... Gang squad, cameras. We've delivered on just about everything we said we would. We got seven out of nine. Three at large, Gawhan, Spinelli, Lipsky, Mike Satellano. That's another thing I said I was going to do, and we did it. The people were sick and tired of it, and they were hurt. But we are here to work with people, not fight the people. This has been, this city has benefited by the peace. Melissa underscored. I'm okay. I was in the, I wasn't in the victory in the fact that I was able to get to the finish line. I stood for my principles, my values, and not aligned with the political machine to whatever they will do to a challenger. Elizabeth Police Department send unit to watch ship agents. Somebody has hired them shipping company customs to make sure somebody who's not supposed to get off gets off no classes nothing etc don't know what that's about can only guess multiple pages of phone numbers and inmate numbers as we continue to turn these old weathered pages of this notebook I will spare you the long list of phone numbers. Ayala, underscored, signed permanent restraining order. Court transcripts. We have pleaded guilty to domestic violence against her. Ayala for assembly. Mother, sister-in-law, DeSoto, seven stairs, assemblyman Anthony Shifu. Illegible. Friendship comes first when your friend is attacked. White pantsuit. Soto. Chosen to dedicate career to public service. Defended Holloway. I have fought my battles in court. Leaders of the machine have attempted to reach into my past. Every time Glenn Cunningham made a decision that the political bosses did not like, he was attacked, and the same has happened to me. No person who something to put, I should have to 
Forum have chosen to return to at a time when victims are blamed for the crimes of their oppressors. Continuous physical abuse. I decided to change my life and stop being a victim. Never broke ethics guidelines. Allegations attempted to extort me. Thanks to the Star Ledger and Jersey Journal, this abuser is getting what he wants. This matter should be private and likely would have remained private had not been for my advocating on behalf of those who challenge corruption. I hold Hudson County Democratic Organization responsible for the invasion of my privacy. Privacy. I suffer from permanent damage to my neck and my back as a result of my decision to date the a violent person. Chapone, this isn't about KS's part. This is about the present election. This is about win at all costs. It's no wonder why people don't get involved in this process. It's just a sad, sad state of affairs here in Hudson County when you can't campaign on the issues. Melissa Holloway, underscore. Karen came to my aid at a very important time when no one would help me. I hope someone doesn't fear fearful they would be any other repercussions and they decide to leave a woman who is victimizing them. They decide to leave a woman. I don't know. Bill Ayala, Cunningham's chief of staff, recommended her to GC. This is a political attack. This is a vicious political attack. They have taken the words of a person who is an admitted domestic abuser and given him credence. This person is a wannabe. He is a trail... He is a, oh, this person is a wannabe. He is a terrible person who has a history of violence versus Karen, and his abuse cannot be, be something because of the Star-Ledger and Jersey Journal. relationship between reporter and the staff of Menendez. Brother, driver, this is what we have heard. I do not have a confirmation. Public document? Question mark. What I can't understand is the prominence this story has been given by SL and JJ. This isn't for front page news. This is a public attempt to publicly destroy someone's reputation. Scrolling through many more pages of phone numbers and, and statistics here. There is Bill A underscore. There is no $1.2 million. KS underscore. There is no $1.2 million. Everything I had. This is just something to hurt me. That's why I'm so outraged. It will be on the cover of the Star Ledger. It's just bad journalism. Lawsuit, question mark. I'm going to speak to people. A lot of people feel it's going to chill people from coming forward with domestic violence. This was a very public attempt. You wouldn't have to take... Uh, a legible... There is no reason why this type of stuff, one-sided allegations, should be given prominence in the paper of record.
If this reporter has a direct relationship, the timing of this is very suspicious. It is a gross distortion of the facts. KS underscore. I gave him large sums of money. 15K, 5K, 10K. Money and earrings. KS 1995. Started to realize I was in real terrible because of domestic violence. I tried to figure out a way to get out of the relationship with not dying. Bill A. It was volunteered to me that there was a relationship. This kind of attack. There has to be some kind of culpability to this kind of attack. Caroline underscore. House burned down. Ten Costa Ricans lost homes. Shep owned home. Their public face hurts property values. East Summit Association. Bob Sheehan. Park Avenue. Roosevelt Commons. Spanish Deli, Eastside Deli, Costa Rican owner. Parking in front of hardware until 9 a.m. Can only park with commercial permit. No commercial plates parking. Bill Schneller, former chief of police, Eastside Association. Steering committee, formal councilman Michael Petrito. Cried all day. Parking was passes. Passed. More phone numbers. Driver's privilege cars cards so these people can keep their jobs and keep contributing to the economy the fact is people are going to drive anyway and it will create it will create a lot of problems we have to come up with a realistic solution to the problem livingston mall can take picture om style furniture after 10 p.m Much more illegible phone numbers, statistics, and names, which I will spare you. And then we come upon what appears to be the final interview in this notebook. Leonardo Pissabag, 14 years in the U.S., restaurant worker, Plainsboro, flat tire. Gilmar Pissabag, 18 years, fish market. July 11th, 145, Lynnhurst. Alliance Abroad, Houston, Texas. Doreen Morris worked working locally. PA, Lou Vent Isinke, Jameson. We're hoping that they can do that they can do this in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Founding Pennsylvania Minutemen. Americans can't get good paying jobs, blue-collar jobs, because they can't compete with illegals, and the employers are paying their slave wages. It's a new form of slavery. It's really unbelievable what's happening. We're not going to have a United States. We really need a lot of people to join with us. I see what's happening to the United States There won't be a United States. This is getting worse. I get depressed now when I hear the news. Bass underscore. We're not against immigrants. We make a clear distinction between legal and illegal. We're about securing our borders. We want the the something of our country, laws of our country respected and obeyed. Selectment enforcement of the law is a form of tyranny. 
that concludes this reading of my long, weathered, and again, barely legible notebook. I hope you all enjoyed that and have a happy, happy holidays. Hey, this is Nick Fierro, and I just really want to thank everybody uh, for coming out to all the live shows at the House of Independence in Asbury Park and uh, watching on helplessly as I get the living shit kicked out of me. Hi, this is Nick Fierro, and I'm going to be reading a poem by Jersey City's own August Kleinshauer, entitled Snow in North Jersey. Snow is falling along the boulevard, and its little cemeteries hugged by transmission shops, and on the stone bear in the park and the World War I monument, making a crust on the soldier with his chin strap and bayonet, Blowing in from the west, all the low hills and meadowlands, swirling past the giant cracking stills that flare all night long along the turnpike. And it's with a terrible deliberateness that Mr. Ruiz reaches into his back pocket and counts out $18 and change for his lotto picks. On the upstairs of a thousand duplexes with the TV on, cancers tick, 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 and the snow continues to fall and blanket these crowded rows of frame and brick with their heartbreaking porches and castellations. And the red 68 Impala on blocks. Joe, he's been drinking again. And Myra's boy Tommy, in old days, it would have been a disgrace. And Father Keenan's not been having a good winter. And it was nice enough this morning, till noon anyhow, and the sun sitting up there like a crown over a great big dome of mackerel sky. But it's coming down now, all right, falling on the Dixon Crucible pencil factory and on the spur to Bayonne, along the length of Pulaski Skyway, and on St. Bridget's, and the Alibi Saloon closed now, oh dear, I can't remember how long. And Lord Jesus save us, they're still making babies. And what did you expect from this life? We're calling for snow tonight and through tomorrow, and an inch an hour over Nine Ridge Road in the old courthouse, 
and along the sluggish gray Passaic as it empties itself in the Newark Bay. No grandpa's story that sells curries now, and St. Peter's almost made it to the semis this year. It's snowing on the canals and rail yards, the bus barns and trucks, and on all the swells and the big houses along the river bluff. It's snowing on us all. And on a three-story fix-up of Van Voorst Park, a young lawyer couple from Manhattan bought. Where for no reason, in the back of a closet, a thick, dusty volume from the 30s sits open the broken spine smelling mildew to a chapter titled Social Realism. I get up in the evening and I ain't got nothing to say. I come home in the morning. I go to bed feeling the same way. I ain't nothing but tired. And I'm just tired and Hey there, baby I could use a little help Can't start a fire Can't start a fire Without a spark This gun's for hire Even if we're just dancing in the dark Message keeps getting clear. Radio's on, I'm moving around the place. I check my look in the mirror. I wanna change my clothes, my hair, my face. Man, I ain't getting nowhere. I'm just living in a dump like this. There's something happening somewhere. Baby, I just know that there is. You can't start a fire. You can't start a fire without a spark. This gun's for hire. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. You sit around getting older. There's a joke here somewhere in on me, I'll shield off her shoulders. Come on, baby, laugh on me. Stay on the streets of this town, and they'll be carving you up all right. They say you gotta stay hungry. Hey, baby, I'm just about starving tonight. I'm dying for some action. I'm sick of sitting around here trying to write this book. I need a love reaction. Come on now, baby. Give me just one look. You can't start a fire. Sitting around crying over broken heart. This gun's for hire. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. You can't start a fire. Worried about your little world falling apart. This gun's for hire. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. Even if we're just dancing in the dark.
This is the sound of walking from your plane. Terminal B. Nuke Airport. All the way out. Cutting through duty free right now. business there. I hope that wasn't too graphic. Okay, pass the blue for all the Marlboros. Giorgio Armani. Jack Daniels. The Bombay Sapphire. Terminal B, that's a fate worse than death. Well, is there, is there a worse feeling in New Jersey than flying United? Which means you think you're going to go to Terminal C like a civilized human being and it pops up Terminal A. It might be one of the most gut-wrenching feelings in all of New Jersey. Get out past the security. Towards the baggage claim signs. This escalator real quick down towards baggage claim. Yeah, thanks a lot. Sorry to make you late. Do you have a... Oh, okay. Yeah. 
feel everybody stepping outside into the North New Jersey air. Ooh, I can feel my strength returning. I'm back in Jersey. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled down for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys and St. Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my hand and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Hi, I'm Kate Nichols. I played the Medieval Times Princess during a New Jersey's The World live show at the House of Independence. In honor of that show, I'm going to eat a whole rotisserie chicken because the Medieval Times Princess brought one with her to the show to give to Pete Genovese because he had the audacity to not review the food at Medieval Times. So here we go. 
is a whole chicken from Stop and Shop. The label reads NP Large Chicken Hot. Don't know what the NP is for. Maybe it's just like, no problem. Large chicken hot. You got it, Kate. See the nutrition facts. Total fat, 15 grams. That can't be right. Ah, serving size, 4 ounces. Servings per container varied. Yes, yeah, it's going to be a lot. Good packaging. I went with a stop and shop chicken. Unlike during the show when I got a Costco rotisserie chicken because those birds are big. Uh, Costco chicken don't play. Even though it costs less, $5 at Costco for a whole chicken. $8 for this chicken at Stop and Shop. And I would say this looks probably more like the size of a normal chicken. I don't even want to know what they do to those chickens that they get at Costco to make them that big. It's like eight pounds. I don't know. I'm not good at um, weights and stuff. Wow. Good skin on here. Hmm. Crisp. Mm-mm-mm. I wonder if this sounds horrific or if it is a little soothing. Like ASMR. I know some people have really great things about not wanting to hear people too, so it was probably bad for them. Yeah, it's pretty juicy. I do have to say the Costco chicken juicier. A little dry. Here, I started right in the white meat. Just took a handful out of the breast. <laughs> so no. Not too bad. Mm. That Costco chicken was heavy too. I had it in my purse for a while. I was like, wow, this is hurting my shoulder. This is not the first time I've done this. <laughs> this being eating a rotisserie chicken just like out of the container going for it you know no meal like no just the chicken just me and the chicken first time i've recorded it um i just want to say i ran this idea by chris and he gave consent so um in high school me and my pal figure out uh, a full-size rotisserie chicken is a pretty good lunch. You split it between the two of you, you each get half a chicken. That's, you know, that's a lot of chicken. It's only like five bucks, two fifty each. And that meant we would have more of our lunch money left over to, um, to buy weed. That's what we did with it. That's what we did with our money. We bought weed, smoked weed, and then ate half a chicken. So I've been, I've trained for this. It's been a long time since that. But, it's not my first rodeo, you know. Mm. Wow. So this is like for 
a New Jersey is the world type audio you'll log. That's such a great idea. What a fun show. Oh, it is. I myself am from Essex County as well, for the most part. Lived out here in New Jersey since I was about 10. Grew up mostly in Maplewood. Pretty cool place. Had some great times. Well, I love hearing when these folks talk about West Orange, Essex County. I've learned a lot about New Jersey culture from the show. Remember, New Boost was a thing. And all the movies that took place in New Jersey. Who knew? Not me. Wow. I'd say I'm like one-third through the first breath at this point. Hmm. <clears throat> you know what's crazy? Health insurance. So, I am eating. I have to shop a lot because I can't breathe through my nose. I've been seeing an ENT and I need surgery. Because according to him, I don't breathe well. Which when he told me, felt like a personal attack. I don't know why. So trying to unpack that, figure it out. But he was like, how are you feeling today? I was like, oh, today actually feels like a pretty good day. I feel like I can breathe all right. You know, not too much pressure, swelling. He was like, the fact that you think you can breathe good today tells me that you don't know what it's like to breathe well. And I'm not going to lie, there was a little part of my brain that was like, fuck you too. <laughs> I don't know why. Why would I be angry about that? He's sharing important information with me. It was so validating, actually, to hear that. Because I'm tired all the time. I have headaches. I can't breathe. And the fact that, you know, this is all starting to make sense. But I don't know. I guess it's a Jersey thing. Maybe. So, health insurance. I need to get this surgery in order to fix my nose so that I can breathe better. You would think that seems like a pretty important thing. That if you have health insurance, it would cover it, right? No. I knew it might not. So I looked into it after uh, being sent for an audiology exam to see if the issues with my sinuses and my nose had affected my hearing. Sometimes I can't hear very well out of my right ear, or if it's really bad, out of, like, both ears. <laughs> Welcome to me talking about my medical issues in my nose. I can't breathe. I'm eating a chicken. This is probably really horrific audio. <laughs> so I go for the hearing test, you know, that my doctor, doctor, <laughs> doctor referred me for. Um... I had to pay $600 out of pocket, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We gotta see what this insurance is really covering and not covering before we go ahead and get this surgery. $600 for beep. I heard that. Beep. I heard that. Which makes sense. Listen, these are doctors. These are people have a lot of advanced training, put in a ton of hours and effort to be able to do the things they do. 
But when you're stuck with a $600 bill and you don't have a ton of money lying around, you start to get frustrated. Anyway, so I look at my insurance coverage to see what is, what what they're going to cover. I finished the first crash. What they're going to cover. And um, I have a 40% co-insurance on surgical procedures. Insurance is like your insurance's way of saying, we will cover this and you will cover the rest. So, also leaves you to wonder, like, 40% of what? Right? I don't know how much the surgery is going to cost. It's not like they have a menu in the ENT office. Oh, uh, the symptom uh, deviation, uh, turbinate reduction. Uh, it's going to be, you know, $9,000. You can upsize it. <laughs> you see where I'm going? So I try to be a good consumer, which is what we're encouraged to do in the current marketplace. And I ask the doctor's office if they can give me a list of prices, charges, fees associated with the CPT codes, which I don't remember exactly what it stands for, but it's something like procedural. Um, so the codes that they use to bill your insurance or bill you for medical procedures, I can get a list of those codes and what they cost. And they say, we don't have that here. You have to go to the physician billing department. I call them and say, you can use this tool online. I use the tool that says, we are unable to generate your estimate at this time repeatedly when it says please call the people i call the people and they say please use the tool online so i'm getting to run around and i just do a little bit of research myself type in the cpt codes from other doctors offices did have more information about it looks like it's going to cost nine to twenty thousand dollars for the surgery and that's not including the cost of the facility fees i couldn't find any information on that facility fees what you pay for for being in the it's an outpatient procedure for being in the facility and i couldn't find the fees for the physicians work themselves kind of like when you go to a mechanic and you pay for the service to your car you also pay for the labor so you also got to pay for a physician right of course they're doing a lot of hard amazing incredible work but i don't have 40 percent of twenty thousand dollars just lying around and um of course, you don't have to pay it all up front. You can spread it out over time. I got student loans. Cost a lot of money to be a person, you know, to exist. So then I looked into switching to a different insurance plan in the new year, which is what I'm going to end up doing. Well, I can breathe. Because what a greedy, entitled little millennial I am. I want to breathe when I eat my avocado toast and drink my cold brew. Mm-mm-mm. Mm, I hear a dry part here. Mm-mm. I drink some water. Man, that probably sounded bad. You heard that? See, I got this post nasal drip constantly. Always gotta clear it. Sounds gross. Feels gross. So, I'm switching to a new plan in the new year. And when you go, I am a self-employed individual. So I buy health insurance through the marketplace, the public marketplace, NJ, get covered. Hey, open enrollment is still open, guys. If you haven't gotten your health insurance yet, do it. So I go on, 
and they ask you a few questions to figure out which kind of plan they would recommend for you. A higher usage plan, a mid usage plan, or a low usage plan. And it is kind of funny what they consider to be high usage. So they break it down like low usage is if you go to the doctor once a year um, and you don't really expect to do anything other than that. The fact that they also have you do this based on what you expect your healthcare needs to be for the future year is really fucking ridiculous. Like, how would you know if you were going to get into a car accident, if you were going to find out that you need a surgical procedure, if literally anything else happens to your body other than it just being okay all the time, it feels like you're penalized for it somehow because you have to pay more money to take care of that body. Anyway, so high usage is um, a surgery or ongoing therapy. Isn't that funny? Like, I am a therapist. I'm a psychotherapist. And the idea that going to therapy once a week is considered like a higher usage thing, which it is, right? You're seeing a provider on a weekly basis that is more than someone who's just going to the doctor once a year when they're sick. Excuse me. But now you've got to pick a plan that based on your income, you're going to end up paying between like three and $500 a month for just because you are taking care of yourself which actually has a net benefit to society as a whole, because if you're taking better care of yourself, you are relying on other things to take care of you less. You're putting less of your bullshit onto other people. <sighs> you know. You guys know what I'm talking about. And the crazy thing about this, all this, is that I, as I said, I'm a therapist. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I have over 10 years of case management experience, so I know to look for all this shit. All my doctors are like, ooh, surgery. You're going to do this. How are people going to know? Somebody could walk in there and say, Doc, I'm getting all these headaches, having trouble breathing. Doctor says, oh, we have this surgical procedure we can do. Highly recommend it. Really think it could help you. You go, great, let's do it. And you don't think, oh, let me make sure my health insurance is going to cover this. No. Why would you, right? A lot of people just go, oh, I have coverage. I'm covered. No. We're supposed to be good consumers. We're supposed to do all this research. I don't know that everybody else would, you know, think to do that. And would even know what questions to ask. Oh, man. What a mess. That, what a mess is in reference to both to what I'm talking about and what I'm doing at the moment, which is eating an entire rotisserie chicken. I ate one, um, almost halfway through. I got one breast, one leg. Um, I guess this is like thigh meat. Whatever. Not usually my favorite part, which is weird because it's actually really juicy and tasty, but I just never think that like, I'm a thigh guy, you know? I guess I am. Anyway, <clears throat> oh, and then trying to schedule this surgical procedure with my doctor's office has been a whole headache because there's a surgery scheduler. I guess that there's a, a person on the staff and that's their position. And when I saw my doctor last, they weren't in the office and they said, oh, they're going to call you tomorrow. And I didn't get a call tomorrow. So I waited like a week because I figured, you know, people get busy. But you know what, Kate? I should have advocated for myself sooner than that. Anyway. I called back a week later 
I should be scheduled it out again. Oh gosh. Yeah, I hope everything's okay. Um but they say, Yeah, we're gonna call you back when they're in tomorrow or when they're back. I called the next day, it's still not back. I don't know, I'm sure to get worried about a surgery schedule, you know. But also like, hold up. So there's no other way for it just to just like schedule the surgery. Like I wanna get this on the books, I'm trying to breathe. Not choke while I eat these rotisserie chickens. I hope they're okay. I'll call back today. Actually, today I got a text from my doctor's office about appointments in January that have been scheduled for me that I didn't schedule. So, something going on. Hmm. Okay. How about this wang? This is little. This is probably one of the um, highest art comedy things I've ever done. Send my Pulitzer Prize to my home address, please. Wow, look at this. Oh, chicken, chicken. I have a show tonight. <laughs> I have to leave. It's 4.55. Probably about half an hour and 45 minutes. Are you great? I'll be at the West Side Comedy Club tonight, folks. So, if you, through some weird coincidence of the multiverse, are listening to this live, come check it out. Wow. Chicken, chicken. I am a comedian and a therapist. That's, that's my bad, guys. Um, some of the people often say, oh, that must give you so much material. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I do. I take notes during my therapy sessions and just talk about the most traumatic moments of people's lives for fun. No, come on. Don't do that. I got into both things kind of at the same point in my life. And I just really have always been super obsessed, I guess, with trying to understand, like, why people are the way they are, you know? Why do we do the things we do? People's stories are so fascinating. And I get to do both things in stand-up and comedy and in therapeutic work really cool a lot of my clients have incredible senses of humor um therapy can be really tough and challenging but you can also laugh a lot something I feel like I just want to say so that people know that because I think it holds some people back from from going the idea that I'm just gonna cry I'm gonna have to bring up all my bullshit I don't want to do that, you know, especially when you're, like, having a good day, and you're like, fuck, now I gotta go get all sad and shit, but it doesn't have to be like that, you can celebrate the good things, 
and there are a lot of therapists out there who have a pretty good sense of humor. There's a balance between using humor as something that we use to deflect, to avoid, to deny. And at other times we use it to lighten things just enough so that we can actually deal with them. A lot more comedians are talking about going to therapy. I think that's pretty cool. That one is really cool. Just normalizing it a little bit more. And as a comedian who has a lot of friends who are comedians, it gives me a lot of hope to see this generation of folks out there who want to work on their stuff, you know, who, who recognize that maybe things don't have to be as hard as they are. I think a lot of people maybe need to hear that too, that we feel like therapy is self-indulgent. Um, and yeah, maybe you are like really high functioning and you can pull it off, but it's also really hard. Just life is hard. And maybe it doesn't have to be as hard, you know? Maybe you could still be doing really well. Um, but without it feeling so, so, so difficult all the time, without all the things that we have to do, the coping skills, the ways of functioning that we've developed, ways of surviving that we developed that um, maybe actually get in the way more than they help. You know, mm. yeah, we're in a dry spot of the chicken again. I hope this is still recording. Twenty three minutes. I think I might finish this fucking thing. It's not like the biggest chicken. I kind of went for a small one. Ooh. So dry. <clears throat> oh. Excuse me. Maybe I'll, yeah, it's funny that I've approached it this way. I started with the first breast and went all the way down the bird. Now I'm doing the same on the other side. But if you just go through the whole breast, it's just so much, like, dry meat. So what I can do to make this a little easier on myself, speaking of, right, why do we do things the way we do them? There might be other ways that don't cause us as much harm. <clears throat> I go back and forth between a little bit of this leg, this thigh, this dark meat, it's nice and juicy. And then go back to a little white meat, back and forth. Who says you just gotta go right down the bird, you know? Who says? Just because something has always been done a certain way doesn't mean you have to keep doing it that way. I hate that, you know? When you come up against that. It's like, oh, 
you know, I thought maybe we could try doing this thing this way. And they're like, oh, that's not really how we do it. It's like, oh, okay, but have you thought about trying it this way? Because it might, you know, make things different or easier or better. Uh, no, no, no. So resistant to change. I remember I worked for a uh, more corporate mental health setting. And um, I really wanted the ability to work from home a bit because a lot of what we did was like, phone calls and research and stuff, things that could be done from home. Um, it did counseling sessions, but did those in person. This is pre-pandem, um, the PP before times, pre-pandem. And they were like, no, no, we really need you here. And listen, they did have like emergency counseling services that they would staff. So you, you need people there. Like if there was um, a layoff or an unexpected employee passing or something at a, a, a place of employment, we were the counselors who would go to be there to support the staff. So yeah, you need, you need folks in the building to be able to do that. Um, but it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, oh, if I'm done for the day with my sessions, why can't I leave a little early and just do, you know, more of that paperworky stuff at home? And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> and then we're like, oh yeah. I wasn't working there anymore, but we can do a lot of this stuff from other places. That happened at a lot of places, right? <clears throat> we don't have to do things the way we've always done them just because we've always done them that way. pizza's kind of dry too. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to eat it. I know that I said I was going to try to eat this whole thing, but why am I going to force myself to do something so unpleasant? And you know, I didn't even have to tell you guys I wasn't going to eat that piece, but I don't know. I wonder what this is going to do to my body. <laughs> it's just like so much meat. It's just going to be sitting in my stomach like this big old pile of meat. But I am committed to the bit. I'll tell you that much. What else could I tell you guys about? Oh, having issues with the tire pressure. My tires for my car. Got in there. And you know, I've seen this show up on the dashboard before. Front left tire blinking. I thought it was the door of the sign that the door was open. So I closed the door. And uh, I was like, oh, I can't be right. And I realized it was indicating the tire. And I panicked. I got out and I checked it. And it didn't look bad. You know, it didn't look flat or anything. So I was like, okay. But I didn't know exactly what to do about it. Like, I knew that I know there are these air compressor things that you can buy it. Little box of hose. You can add 
or take away air from your tires. I don't know, guys. I am not a tire scientist, but I uh, I had an ex-boyfriend who did that for me. It was not a good relationship. And he would help me with my tires. And after we broke up, I went back to my car one day, not too long after we broke up, to discover I had a flat tire in the parking lot. Which is like, you know, it happens. But then, very soon after, I had another flat tire randomly in a parking lot. So then I wondered, is he showing up and letting the air out of my tire? Because he knows that I know that he has that tire compressor. Know something he would help me with? I don't know, guys. I really don't know. He did a lot of shady stuff. Very sneaky. Lied a lot. So I wouldn't put anything past him. And now... My current boyfriend held my tire. Fix it up. Go back. Another tire. Light blinking. He was out of town. So I go to the gas station and I use the air that they have there. Oh my goodness. Would you believe? It's a dollar fifty for three minutes of air. Quarters only. I didn't have a dollar and fifty in quarters on me. Who does? I go home, buy some quarters, come back. And then I realize I don't know exactly what I'm doing. I don't know if it needs more air or less air. But I remember he said that was supposed to be about 50 PSI. I don't know what that stands for. Pressure should indicate. <laughs> hmm. So, yeah, I think I put too much air in it. The light didn't go off. I know I put too much air in it because he checked it for me today and he said, that one has too much air. <laughs> well, I think he fixed it. I hope so because I got to drive to the show. I really try to take very good care of my car. It's something that's very important to me. Oh, I was getting a phone call and I got worried that it stopped recording, but it doesn't look like it did. I try to take very good care of my car because it's something that I can do. Because this is something that takes me to where I need to go. And it's something that is within my control. You know, I can go to the place to get the things that I need for my car. I can keep my car clean. I can give it gas. I can get oil change. I find a lot of comfort in that. When I was growing up, my family cars were really messy. My mom had a catering business, and there'd always be, like, bits of food and, like, old trays of stuff. And, oh, my God, it's gross. Like, it would smell like garbage sometimes. And... My parents didn't take good care of our cars. Like, there'd always be lights on the dashboard on. Um, things were always breaking, falling apart. We'd get another used car. Break, fall apart. So, just a little peek into my life. That's why I try to take really good care of my vehicles. Because it just feels like a way to take good care of me.
Excuse me. <laughs> you know when you burp and like it's a little burp, but you know there's a bigger burp like under it. It's like deeper in your body and your soul. Or you have to like find it. Is that making sense? That's what happened there. That's one of the cases that I'll make for therapy too. Is like you pay rent, right? Your brain, your heart, your mind, your body. That's the house you live in twenty four seven. No matter where you are, no matter where you go, that's your home. So I think it's probably worth investing in yourself a little bit. I think everybody deserves it. There are also a lot of affordable ways to access therapy that people don't know about. And this is one of the things that I really like to do is when my pals find out I'm a therapist and they ask me some questions, just point people in the right direction through resources. Because a lot of people, I think, have the assumption I even talked about health insurance is really complicated and always not so great and not always so great. So I assume it's not going to cover it. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe the therapist you want to see isn't in network with insurance. There are lots of other options. Lots of therapists who don't accept insurance will work with you to use your out of network benefits, which a lot of people don't realize they have. This means that the provider you want to see, the therapist you want to see, isn't in network with insurance, but they can provide you a super bill, which is like a receipt for your therapy sessions, and then your insurance will reimburse you. Um, to find out more about your out-of-network coverage, you can call your insurance company and tell them you want to find out about your out-of-network behavioral health or mental health benefits, and they'll tell you. Maybe they'll say, we reimburse for 60% of the cost of the session or 80% of the cost. Every now and then, I do run into somebody who's getting 100% reimbursed for their sessions, or you might not have the out-of-network coverage, and that's okay, too. There are lots of other options in organization. I like to talk about is Open Path Collective. Their website is openpathcollective.org, I believe. Um, if you Google Open Path Collective, you can probably find it. They have this huge directory of therapists who work with folks on a sliding scale basis. So they might charge between $30 and $60 for a therapy session, which if you don't have health insurance coverage, um, or you do, but your coverage isn't so great, uh, it's a really great way to find somebody and you can filter to find a therapist based on the things that you're looking for. Um, so that's a really wonderful one. You can also look to, into getting on your spouse or your partner's health insurance plan. Sometimes you don't even need to be married and your employer will let you go on to their benefits. They have different ways of working that out because maybe they've got out-of-network benefits or they're covered to see a therapist that you want to see. You also, if you're employed and have a human resources department, can get in touch with your EAP, your employee assistance program, and sometimes they offer free counseling sessions. That might be on a short-term basis or something else, but really, really useful stuff. It can help get you connected with the right person. You might not even realize because you find out about this during like your orientation or some HR presentation that nobody's paying attention to. And those EAP benefits will sometimes cover people in your family. And some of these EAPs have a looser definition of family. It doesn't have to be your spouse or your child, your immediate family. It could be, you know, your cousin or it could be your sibling or something like that. 
um, which could be a really great way to help find resources, whether it comes to mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, all different kinds of resources for folks can be accessed through an employee assistance program. So that is another avenue to pursue as well. Hmm. Yeah. And did you know that if you are employed, your employer is supposed to make reasonable accommodations for your medical needs. So like, let's say you found a therapist, you really want to see them, but they can only see you on Mondays at 11, but you have worked during that time. Your employer is supposed to make a reasonable accommodation, which would be to allow you to block out that time in your schedule so you can have your therapy session. Maybe that means that you have to make up that hour somewhere else. Maybe it doesn't. But people also don't know that. They see that as a barrier. Oh, no, the therapist I want to see. Everybody only has daytime availability. You actually might have a little bit more access to your daytime than you realize. It's so hard, man, because I know all this because I've worked in the field for a while. Because I've done these things. If I didn't, I wouldn't have found those things out. I mean, maybe I would have, right? Like, who knows? But, oh my god. I ate so much of this chicken. Look at us. 38 minutes. Wow. I really, I really fucking did this. <laughs> I will send a picture to the New Jersey is the world crew. As ever am. <laughs> hmm. A lot of information in this um, random thing I'm doing here. I hope I didn't alienate or scare anyone away who could have benefited from that information with the horrific sounds of my chewing and burping. Doesn't have to be perfect, Kate. You just gotta try. Just keep putting stuff out there. Hmm. You know, I read somewhere that um, you should create the kind of comedy that you want to see. You know, don't try to do, oh, this is what people want. Do the stuff that you're really drawn to, because chances are there are other folks out there like you. I'm just wondering if this falls into that criteria for myself. I do a lot of podcasts. Maybe I would listen to this. I feel like the chewing would really throw me off. Everything's an experiment. Chicken time. Chicken time. Eating my chicken. Dinner for eight bucks, folks. If I have to throw up, this is not going to be good because I'm going to be in the car. I'll bring a bag. You guys know I like to keep my car clean. Yeah, I'm really uh, nibbling at what's left here. Oh, you know that piece I told you guys I was going to eat? Should I go back and eat that? No, it's way too dry. (coughs) 
Excuse me. I could hide those burps, but I feel like I I want you in on like the reality of what's happening here, you know. And that's being a woman. We always feel like we've got to hide these parts of ourselves. Don't burp. I don't burp. Burp, but make it cute. Love that. <laughs> Last weekend, I did a show or two weekends ago, and I was on stage less than 15 seconds when I got the weirdest heckle I've ever heard. I don't even know if I'd opened my mouth yet. And this man goes, You're a baby! Who was a larger white bald man wearing a white hoodie with a white mustache. Everyone's laughing. I was laughing. I was like, did you just call me a baby? Like, I know that he meant it was because of what I look like, I suppose. But usually when someone calls you a baby and they yell it at you like an insult, it's because, like, oh, you're a baby, you know? Like, you're you're so sensitive or weak or pathetic or young or whatever. Um, so it was really weird because, like, that stuff came up. But I knew he was talking about my appearance. But I'm a 32-year-old woman. Not the youngest, right? I'm not older, but... That's the weird part about being a 32-year-old woman is, like, you're like, oh, thanks, I look so young. Thank you. But you're also like, I'm a grown-up. Like, I belong here. I was very um, hot in between those feelings. We had a lot of fun. His name was Don. Don, if you're listening, hope you're doing okay. He's a teamster. Still don't really know what that means. I understand. There's a Jimmy Hoffa connection. I, there is the Teamsters just a union, but a union of what? That's the part I never, like, construction workers, garbage, sanitation, or is it, like, different things in the, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's better not to ask questions about the Teamsters and Don. Okay, well. Minute 43. Pretty much. Ew. Oh, no. Ugh. Guys, if you ever make it to the end of a rotisserie chicken, do not pull apart Oh, what I guess is the rib cage for... Oh, why does it look like that? Oh. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Happy holidays to all. I hope you got something out of this horrific experience if you happen to have listened all the way to the end. Um, Happy holidays. Stay weird, New Jersey.
Hey everybody, Chris here, and uh, I need new sneakers and some socks, so I'm getting out of my car right now at the parking lot of the Bridgewater Commons Mall, and I figured for our Yule Log, we got a lot of time to fill, maybe I'll just let the audio run, this will be somewhat narrated, but there's also going to be stretches where you're just listening to what it sounds like to be shopping at the Bridgewater Commons Mall. Rainy day, walking through the parking lot. The GPS just took me to the mall. Put in Foot Locker, and it just sent me to the mall. So first I'm gonna walk, I'm, I see an AMC Dine-In Theaters to my left. Uh, and that's pretty cool. And I'm gonna actually enter through the Bloomingdale's. I got my uh, Seton Hall hoodie on. So all these Central Jersey people might view me as Essex County garbage, who knows. Bloomingdale's. I gotta just find my way to the actual mall. It's always something, uh, I always feel a little weird when you enter a store like a Bloomingdale's. And then, hi, how are you? I'm good. Which way is the mall entrance? Right there. Right there. Thank you. See? They see a guy like me at the Bloomingdale's with my uh, Seton Hall hoodie and my general vibe, and they go, "Can we help? Can we help you right away?" You you saw how long I was in this store before somebody was like, "You're not trying to be in Bloomingdale's." But I was just saying, when you enter through a classy store like this, I always feel awkward. Anyway, here we go. It's crossing into the threshold of the mall itself. It smells nicer than I remember. Like got massage chairs. Oh, lens crafters. Ooh, anti-ants. I might need to hit that on my way out. And they got a J. Crew down there, too. Might need to come by here a little more often. If I can't find some sneakers that work for me, I might hit up that Auntie Anne's. This place is empty. The Bath and Body Works. Joseph Jacob Jewelers. If I went in and just bought some diamonds... Where's the Foot Locker? Passing by the Lord and Taylor. K Jewelers. Oakley store, man. That brand is still commanding that respect. I got the Victoria's Secret and Forever 21 to my right. And I'm busting a left. Down by the Champs. Does Champs have sneakers? Ooh. 
I was going to go to the footlocker, but I'm finding it hard to find. Just hit up chance. Okay, I'm entering the chance. some options that I wasn't offended by. I think I'm going to swing through the Foot Locker and just see what they have. And then if I need to hit up the champs on the way back, I'll hit up the champs on the way back. And now we're getting to a section you know, also a little more crowded down near the Macy's side. Skechers, nah. Food court. Oh, that's good. Maybe I'll swing. Let's see what they got. They got a Qdoba, Japanese place, Euro falafel place, salad works, Hagen Dazs. This is quality. Charlie Steaks, Thai Kitchen, Nathan's, Sabaro, Bonaduce's home away from home. You might think that sounds like a fountain in the background, but it's not. It's a, a hibachi. The sun Japan. What's this bananas place? Oh, frozen yogurt? All right. All right. Ooh, Haagen-Dazs has a seasonal peppermint bark flavor. I am not mad about that. Ooh, they got the Build-A-Bear workshop down there. Lids, Yankee Candle. The Lego store. I mean, this is a mall. This is a mall in a big way. Wait, now we got an imp. I'm about to get to the end. I looked it up. It said there was a footlocker in this goddamn mall. Hot topic, baby. Oh, there we go, the Hot Topic and then the Foot Locker. I might need to find a bathroom, too. First things first, yeah, I might need to... Hmm. That's going to be a problem. Public services, restroom, where am I? Shit. 
with recorded audio. That doesn't seem cool. Actually, this footlocker looks like it has some options for me. blowing my mind. I'm underwhelmed after all that. I'm underwhelmed. I think the champs had a few options that I actually like better. But what the hell is hype world? Come across the light. Oh, they got the Spencers. You can get a little guy who'll fart in the back of your car. Hype world is so expensive, so of course. Not. Hype World's out of my price range. 
Rep World has used sneakers for $250. That's <laughs> beyond my sneaker budget. Turns out Collins Fashion Optical. Pro Image. That's a sports store. Okay. Hey, we're about to go back. I'm, sh- I'm as shocked as anybody that I'm about to go shop at Champs, but... First, we got to find a bathroom. I'll, I'll be quiet about it. Maybe I'll mute. Nathan's cheese fries right now? That's no joke. Here we are, back in the basement. Here we are, face to face. A couple of silver spoons, hoping to find we're two of a kind. Together. I think we're combining multiple. Oh wait, that's a different. I think that's a uh, family ties. Well, family ties, and then what was the other weird uh, sitcom about the guy who wrote cartoons? Too close for comfort. Yeah. Yo. I don't know how we got on this. Merry Christmas, Nick. Merry, Merry Christmas, Mike D. Uh, still alive and kicking. Uh, full of uh, Christmas cheer. And I'm glad that now we're fully adults and we're still sitting in my, my basement. Yeah. <laughs> like, we moved out. to a new, uh, new basement. But... Almost exactly like, like the old basement, like Mike D's old basement growing up, and also right behind us we have the giant library of 
like all D and D, like like everything. Every I got a book, like the entire, every hardcover book of D and D. Got some good D and D, some vintage D and D. Even like Greyhawk, we used to be Greyhawk. Uh, Greyhawk we were big Greyhawkers and yep. Dragonlance. Right? No, we were, we did some Dragonlance too, definitely. Yeah, but Greyhawk. Was Greyhawk was our big thing. So new basement, uh, same people, still here after uh, who knows how long it's been. And uh, thinking about Christmas. What do you think about Christmas, Mike? Day? Does it fill you with cheer? Honestly, Christmas makes me really sad. <laughs> like... Do you do you, um, do you remember when you realized that there was no Santa Claus? I do. Was it a slow development or was like the final realization like... So I'll admit that I was like... I was the kid who when every other kid knew that Santa Claus wasn't real, I still like firmly <laughs> believed in Santa Claus. And I actually think it was my brother who was two years younger than me. It was kind of like, Mike, like this is getting a little embarrassing. Like there is no... What was that like no fourth Santa grade Claus. or fifth grade? What do you think? I think I was in fourth grade. Yeah. Yeah, fourth seems like the time. Like, third, you're still holding on to hope. And, like, you kind of, like, you know, if you have an older sibling, they're saying terrible things to you when they get mad and telling you there's no such thing as Santa. Not that my older sister would ever do that to me. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, I definitely was, like, the, the last person holding on to onto Santa, and I think that, like, yeah. You know, and I grew up with a lot of tough kids who I don't think ever, ever believed that there was a, a Santa because I don't think Christmas uh, made it made it to them. So Christmas also is a big time for, um, or all winter. But I had a special job of uh, attending the fire, and we had one in the living room, one to attend in our TV room. And when we'd have all the families over, my job was to get wood, put wood in the fire, and this fed into my uh, pyromaniac uh, tendencies that were brought about by uh, Boy Scouts. And, and you, you had a cool, you had a great, a great house, but you had a great fireplace in your house, like a giant fireplace. Um, you know, yeah, definitely got got me into a lot of trouble. Uh, used for all kinds of good things. Uh, learning how to uh, remember. Fireplace safety, uh, make sure you uh, prime your flu before you start your fire so you don't smoke out your entire house, especially when your parents are away and uh, the fire department shows up. I, I'm pretty sure when when we moved to West Orange, I had never even seen a fireplace before. Um, but I'm pretty sure everything that I learned about fireplaces, you taught me <laughs> when we were kids. Uh, and, yeah... Definitely miss not having a fireplace now. I miss. I, I wish I had a house with a fireplace. Yeah, that's one thing that I wish that I that I had. Maybe we can light a fire here in the basement. We could definitely make one in like the Weber for sure. I definitely have a grill. I definitely have charcoal briquettes. Yeah, there's plenty of like wood around. It might be a little wet, but we get hot enough. But uh, yeah, definitely uh, fireplaces good for Christmas or uh, or all the time really. No, I'm sorry, I'm rambling again. Christmas time is here again. We need like Christmas um, 
karaoke. So we should put on the iTunes and like the place where they don't they have a new karaoke like thing on there. Maybe I don't have any of that shit. <laughs> so I don't. Know. You don't have uh, you don't have the music on here. Yeah, it's in like Apple Music. I think. No, but that's only the one that. Uh, oh really? Like my the Why ones. Is it like that? Is that bad for you? Is it bad to have the stuff on there? Or no, but I'm just it? like a weirdo where I only will like. Oh, that's right. You only pay for it. Yeah. Okay. I'm one of those non-streaming people. I'm happy to pay for music, but I just pay for it. I use it mostly for listening to, like, radio stations now that, like, I'm not near. That's pretty much it. Um, One of our great Christmas traditions is always on Christmas night, after we were done with all of our family stuff and whatever, we'd always run around to each other's like houses in the neighborhood would be like freezing cold and like everybody seemed like to be pretty much okay with just letting us like do our own thing even when we were like younger so that always led to being outside in the freezing cold in West Orange and uh, living on hills and uh, trying to hide the fact that we were smoking either cigarettes or marijuana and then you know I don't I don't know if anybody else makes this realization when it's really cold out and you're smoking like anything outside and you come inside to a nice warm environment. You instantly you like instantly stink and when you're an idiot kid like and you think that like you know, you sprayed some terrible like cheap cologne on yourself and then walked back in that nobody smells it. It was like the one night that you would get a pass and your parents like wouldn't yell at you. You, or you were, blame it on Mike D. Or, you, or I'd blame it on you. Yeah. You, earlier tonight, you brought up a funny Christmas season story, which I hadn't thought about in a really long time, which was when when we moved when I moved to West Orange, the house I lived in had the world's steepest driveway. I mean, it, it was like 45 degrees straight. You know, like... like it, terrible. I don't know why, like, no... No engineer or zoning board would approve that driveway these days. Like, they just wouldn't. And one Christmas season, it was extre- It was one of those years where it was just extremely cold. It was freezing for days and weeks, snow, ice, the whole thing. And we figured out that anytime, you know, we were screwing around outside and any liquid that you spilled basically froze not instantly but like within like a minute or two it turned to ice so we had this brilliant idea that wow we could we could turn my driveway into like an ice skating rink and ride down it on sleds (laughs) so we took the hose from our house which i guess because it came from inside was still warm enough to not freeze and we sprayed down my whole driveway which turns into like a three quarters of an inch it was worse than that because three quarters of an inch sheet of ice. The original, the original thing was that Mike was given the task with his brother to shovel the driveway while left, like while your father left, right? So yes. instead of shoveling, like we started like you know, sledding because there was just enough snow to like you know go real fast. So we're riding down it. And it gets packed down. Then of course the great idea of like spraying water on top of this made it even faster and that wasn't even like fast enough for us we were so like dumb we realized at that point you could take like you know palm olive or like laundry detergent put on the bottom of Pam. yeah or pam or anything kind of like in christmas vacation but i remember pouring palm olive like on the bottom of my sled and like we would run and then like go down like going like head first and like 
it was just so fast. It was like ridiculous. But anyway, I didn't mean that. But no, you probably yeah. remember it better than I do. I remember. I just remember like making that weird realization of like always having like soap with me after that, and like I got in trouble the one time we did it in my driveway for using like all of, like the laundry detergent. And I was like, what the hell happened to all the detergent? Like, I poured water back in to, like, try and tell her. She's like, there's water in here. She's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, we were putting on our sleds. Like, she, like, couldn't understand. I was like, what? That was a really fun day until until my father came home. And we were sitting in the house, and we just heard, <laughs> Yeah, we were in the, in the basement. <laughs> in the basement, as we always were. Uh, the unfinished basement, and... He was trying to drive his his like Monte the, Carlo. Was it the Monte Carlo or the Blazer? Those are the two cars that he had. I can't remember which one he had at the time. But the best part about it was we were sitting in the basement and the windows were right at the level of the driveway. So just imagine like we're in there, you hear the spinning like Mike D saying it, and then like you just see the truck go up and then it rolls back down and like the wheels are spinning, there's smoke. And uh, I'll let Mike D take over from there because uh, it was... Well, I mean, at that point, my father burst into the house and said his famous catchphrase, Sis Christ! Which, <laughs> Sis Christ! And he just, like, couldn't... He's like, what? Like, he went berserk. He's like, I thought I told you to shovel the driveway. And I was like, yeah, we did. But then we figured out it was quicker to spray water to melt the, the snow. And that excuse did not carry very far. You know, and I don't think, like, that ice didn't melt for weeks. No. It was the driveway like, became unusable for weeks. I just remember in, like, uh, the early 90s, like, we had these, like, series of, like, brutal, like, winters where, like, I remember by the time we were juniors or seniors, I think we had an entire, like, week out of school. And, like, for West Orange to, like, shut down, like, you know, had to be, like, pretty bad because they didn't want to, like, extend the year or anything like that. Plus, we lived on a town that was all hills. And... That that brings to mind one of now, which I think it was one of like the shittiest things. We we did a lot of shitty things, but the Terminator Junior incident oh, that was, was uh, directly related to that snowy, icy uh, winter. Yep, we so D- Domino's Pizza that winter had a had a promotion, which was called the the Terminator Junior, and they put like uh you know back in the day. People would put, they would bring flyers to your house, and and some person would drop yeah. off like every day. And the guy would actually be wearing like the domino. The domino like, was like, like yeah, he looked like full dominoes. Yeah, like these guys were in it to win it. And they would drop these flyers and coupons off at our house every day. We didn't really think much of it, but then we actually looked at the one, and it was this deal called the Terminator Junior Meal. And I think it was, you got two pizzas, and two orders of breadsticks for something like. Like yeah. six ninety nine. Some so we were off because of this like inclement weather. We were off from school for a whole week and so our yeah. parents were at work and we were shoveling. Yeah, we were shoveling and making a few bucks and we we decided to call for the Terminator Junior and we would call from my house every day and this poor delivery guy in like a like a like a Yugo. Like a you like some, some sort of really shitty like hatchback. Hat, hatchback would have to come deliver us in this, like, horrifying weather that closed the school for a week. And we would sit on my porch and watch this poor man try to drive his Yugo up to deliver our pizzas, of which he probably made, like, 14 cents for, you know? Like, they had stopped, um, they had, like, stopped 
plowing, plowing. they couldn't plow but, anymore like the main county roads and like trying to salt them so people like there was like buses going down mount pleasant like sideways and you know but where and, it gets really evil for me is the first day we did it because we were hungry from shoveling snow all day but after that we did it for the sadistic pleasure of trying to watch this poor man drive his car up and i still to this day feel really bad like i literally now 30 years later feel really bad he's now the uh, regional manager for the entire uh, northeast he's now he still he tells that story every year he goes it was one of the worst winners i ever worked as a driver for domino's he's like man he's like they used to give these great starter jackets that had domino's logo on he's like i had one because i was like the best delivery guy get the the mesh hat he's like there's this one house that kept on ordering the Terminator Jr. Terminator Jr. He goes, and I'd have to go there every day. Yeah, that was terrible. Well, remember another time, it was that same Is period. that why you still order Domino's at like 2 o'clock in the morning? I haven't in a long time, actually. But yeah, but I do, like, I'll admit, like, yeah, I, as big of a pizza nerd as I am, I'm not above ordering a Domino's if it suits the situation. Like, no question. Did remember you hear that? Did everyone hear that? That's documented. Yes, I Mike will. D eats bad pizza and has no shame. I just like pizza, period. But remember that same year, we we were all home from school, parents at work. We were hanging out at my house right before Christmas, playing D and D, and like somebody rings the doorbell, and I'm like, oh, and they ring the doorbell, and it's like a delivery person from UPS, FedEx, or whatever, and they hand this giant box to us. I'm like, oh, that's really strange, and you know, like. Package deliveries weren't super common back then, so it was kind of like that was oh. like a specialty. Like when you ordered a gift gift basket or something, that like people actually like delivered. showed up at your house deliver. So we get this giant box, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what this is, and I just immediately open it, and we're all standing there. We pull it out, and it is a huge gift basket filled with all kinds of gourmet food. There is, remember, there was oh like God. sausages, pancake mix syrup uh like it was like the be- like the, the best gift like basket high end like high end great bacon like oh my gosh i don't know who would have sent that to my parents I honestly it was like probably sent to like your i don't know wherever your mom was it's probably from. sent to our neighbor and we just took it oh yeah i remember you calling up uh i remember you calling your mom and asking if it was okay and then like as usual we took it and went to your house oh my and we cooked a giant. We we, we basically cooked the enti- every single thing in the gift basket. We made pancakes, sausage. Like I think there was some like uh, cinnamon buns. Yeah, like, they had like a full sit down like breakfast at like the. I remember at the kitchen table. I can't remember like. I think my mom was maybe my mom was home where my parent. I think they were both working up in Chester at the time. I can't remember. But yeah, we just like. We would do that all the time. That was like we were in like we went through a grilling phase too, but the best breakfast ever. And I remember my mom was like completely shocked because she came home and we had eaten every single thing in the gift basket. Like there was nothing left. It was like the Grinch. There was just like wire left on on the thing. I'll I'll apologize to your mom now for not even just me, but like we'd always be at like Mike D's place, and we were like teenage and teenage boys like and all we were doing like was eating at that point like we'd go there and like clean out like Mike D's like fridge and like 
everything, right? And like you'd walk back and and poor me, like your mom would be like, God damn it, I just went like shopping and like you'll like four or five teenage boys like, you know, in the same Eating thing, the, like, yeah. And like forget it, that was like probably when we just started smoking pot, but like once we were smoking pot, like I my mom was telling a story and she's like, Oh, you guys would come in she's like and uh I'd wake up in the morning there'd be like no food left. I was like she's like I was like, yeah, but I was like, because, you know, now she smokes and everything. I was like, yeah, but you're probably stoned. She's like, I had no idea. I was like, oh, my gosh. But, yeah. The, the, uh, I, and, like, to this day, like, I still, I've always been really good at making, like, breakfast. That's always been, like, my jam. You were a professional breakfast maker I was at one pre- point. I was a, I was you a were short, a short article. Article. Yeah, I, I, My two years at uh, Paul Smith's. And, uh. But no, yeah, breakfast is like the, the, of course they say the most important meal of the day, but it's the meal at which people are most particular about how they like their food prepared. And even the most like people who you think are normal, notice this when you go out with somebody and you've never like eaten with them before, you might know them in different contexts, but you go out to breakfast with them and you see what they order for breakfast, especially at a diner where you could pretty much get anything. And then, not that I'm passing judgment on anybody, but like, eggs are an, a good indicator of uh, a person's uh, personality and uh, their true self. So, do you like scrambled eggs? Are you a sunny side up person? Are you specific about how you want your eggs as far as like, over hard, medium, or over, or over easy, all different types of eggs. There's also always the person who orders poached eggs, and I have to say, that's my least favorite thing to make, so if you're a poached egger, but now when I go out, I always order poached eggs because I get uh, Eggs Benedict. Oh, really? I love Eggs Benedict. Instead of getting Canadian bacon, you get um, corned beef hash underneath. So English muffin, corned beef hash, uh, poached egg, hollandaise, with a side of French fries. Um, man, I think eggs, eggs Benedict are gross. One time, hollandaise is fantastic. Oh. Do you not like runny eggs? I like runny eggs. I don't like hollandaise. Really? It, it's well, gross. It's basically like butter. I think it comes from. One Try time. it without that and just have your yolk go over. Like I'm not a Canadian bacon guy, but I like I really good hash. Not like the crappy, like, you can spread hash, like real, like, homemade hash. A poached egg on top of that is fantastic. And the one place does homemade biscuits, so it's soft all the way through. You can use your fork to eat it. But I also like putting, like, you know, eggs and bacon on top of my French toast. Or pancakes. One time, I... Make, like, a pancake egg sandwich. We were up in New Hampshire... Pelican McGriddle, I guess. with With our buddy John... And uh, we we'd been going to like a bunch of G Funk shows, <laughs> and, and we were and so like the, the day after the last show, we like wake up, we were camping, and we're driving, and we see a place that's like, bre- you know, like breakfast lobster Benedict. He's like, oh my god, lobster Benedict sounds like oh. the best thing ever. And we're in New England, whatever, yeah, and you know, I, I was a vegan at this time, so it didn't interest me. But we stopped at this place, we have breakfast. He has Lobster Benedict. We leave. 25 minutes later, he pulls over, and he's like, I'm so sick, I think that I'm going to die. 
And he had some kind of like awful food poisoning from that lobster Benedict. And I remember him like sleeping in the back of the truck for like hours. Like he was just so sick and I felt awful. But there was like nothing I can do, you know? Yes. And I think that's why I never touched the holidays. It's weird because I'd never, I would never get eggs Benedict. Like I would, that wasn't like ever something I ordered. Like, um, but I remember I had a bite of somebody's once and then I was like, this is like fantastic. I was putting my french fries in the hollandaise. <clears throat> so that's what got me into it. And then I became very particular. I was never a hash person either. And I don't like Canadian bacon. Just not my thing. Like I have this thing with like, I like pork roll, but um, I'm not really into like hammy type things in the morning. I don't know, but I do like sausage too. Uh, so hash under that, and if you don't like Hondas, just use the yolk. Then some people are anti-yokers. Oh, I'm a, I, I like a yoker, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take the advice of my my uh, dearly departed buddy Anthony Bourdain, Tony, and uh, never never eat Hollandaise sauce, man. Really? Yeah, he was he was an anti bruncher no and anti hollandaise sauce guy. Well, I'm not a yeah. I mean, brunch has a bad kind. Yeah, he was a, a like, big. He you know he was like never eat brunch. Um, well, what about like hollandaise? Now I feel bad. It's so good though. Yeah, but I think the thing not that it's so good, but I think it's one of those things where like they make it and they spit it. Well, no, you have to if you have it, it's difficult to make. You if have to you make, make real. Well, you have to make it like right. You have to make it properly, and if it, you don't make it properly, people get sick. Yeah, because you know? it has like it's being made with, like egg yolks. I think the real way, egg yolks and like probably butter. But yeah, uh, definitely uh, breakfast. Good indicator of uh, somebody's personality, uh, especially when it comes to uh, their eggs. Pancakes. Very particular about my pancakes. And also biscuits. I'm a big biscuit uh, lover. Uh, bis- biscuits, the easiest thing to make in the world. That also comes from being a Boy Scout because every like thing you show, one thing you should always have with you is like some form of Bisquick when you're camping because you can make anything out of it. Yeah. Little wa- water, like, water heat and Bisquick and you got a meal, man. The one thing I always I always wanted to do and I never did was they would always show in the Boy Scout handbook uh, this one scene where the guy, they, they're taking dough from a Bisquick and wrapping around a stick and then holding the stick with a fire and turning it. I have that old Boy Scout handbook upstairs. I know, but like I've never made a biscuit like that. I was never, never a Boy Scout. I don't know. If, like, I don't think Boy Scouts is like the same as it was back then. I mean, my son was doing like Cub Scouts and it was like pretty terrible. But like, I think like when I was in it, like I liked it because it had the like, I don't like, I, I was into like learning how to like, you know, survive at like a young age. I don't know. I think it prepared me for like a lot of... I think we both were obsessed with yeah. survival. I well, mean... that was also like, we go back to... You know, I guess we had that Red Dawn mentality. I have that entire shelf there is survival gear. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with, like, you know, used to be, like, labeled as a wingnut, and you still might be, but, like, hey, listen, a couple years ago, people were fighting over toilet paper ready to kill each other. I was like, there was lines, like, for food. Like, don't, you know. I mean, last night, we, you know, it was like, 
we, we, were, we were having a chat. It was like 9 o'clock. We heard like, you know, it was a bad storm here. We heard a boom. All the lights go out, you know. And then we just came down and broke into the survival box, right? Like, shortwave radio, <laughs> flashlights. I called Dr. Brian. Shout out to my my buddy and neighbor, Dr. Brian. I was like, we might need to form a vigilante group tonight. Definitely. And he said that he's down. And then also, uh, shout out to Professor Steve, my other neighbor, who's one of the, the black belts at my <laughs> jiu-jitsu gym. Like, you have uh, underground. Uh, it's good to have, like... Yeah, we have and like have trusted people that like you all kind of like if we something do. were to happen like you guys yeah. are we have a we have a trusted society have, like of, a, a muster point like you know plans but um we're all going to Gethard's house well that was like all the you know it, it sounds like cliche but like you know be prepared right the the Boy Scout model like I think that like I'm glad that I did that stuff or or had those experiences and like you know merit badges like emergency preparedness like who's who's like teaching that like now if you're like you know not that you're a wing nut anymore but like it's more socially acceptable like it'll be in places around I'll be around groups of people who um when the subject does present itself are like very proud of the fact that they're like preppers and like you know whatever and I, I remember saying to the one guy one time I was like I was like I, you know that's a great thing I think I was like, one of the things that you're forgetting about, I was like, what's that? I was like, don't tell everybody that you have all this stuff. I said, especially other people, like, around you. I said, because, you know, you can't underestimate the human, uh, your programmed uh, genetics to survive are stronger than you realize. You might morally think one way right now, but when your life or your family, family's life depend on it, like, you know, we'll do anything, like, you know, to, to listen, toilet paper. Still, we talked about this a million times. People killing each other over toilet paper. And Clorox wipes. Yeah. That's the true meaning of Christmas. Definitely. Clorox wipes and how I cleansed myself for the new year. That's my, my, my Christmas ritual now. I do right after. Right after on Christmas Eve. After the uh, Greek Orthodox ceremony, I go into the parking lot, take all my clothes off, and wipe myself Wipe down yourself with, with Clorox wipes. That's it. And ask for forgiveness for uh, my sins. It does remind me of the time when uh, when we accident not accident I don't know if it was accidentally or on purpose took acid at your family's Christmas it dinner. Definitely wasn't on accident, but <laughs> so we then we got subjected to again the Christmas Day ritual like where everybody's hanging out and blah blah blah. And so Mike D wraps up. They come down to like my house. Um, my cousin Nicole's there and all my cousins and everybody you're in this stage where we were eating like a lot of acid I was back from West Virginia and we had these giant hits of like kaleidoscope acid which were like really four hits of acid so Mike these was like hey it's like I got that acid like you know everybody's like I remember going inside and asking I was like oh everybody's leaving like right now we're like perfect we'll take it now we'll like hiss in like whatever 45 minutes so we take the acid we're like you know hanging out talking about my cousin then all of a sudden like I have to go inside like to do the final goodbye walk into like the living room and like and I look at the Christmas tree and I'm like oh my god like I all of a sudden out of nowhere got hit like blindsided like the most visual acid ever I'm like and I'm like oh my god 
And your parents really did it up for Christmas every year. Yeah, like, like amazing my, yeah. giant Christmas tree decorations everywhere. People didn't talk for at least two days after decorating the tree because of the the uh, ornaments and lights having to be in just the right spot. So yeah, it was very. Uh, my mom was uh, you know, very festive. But standing there, I realized that I am completely starting to like trip, like immediately like one of those times where it's not like it's creeping up on you it's like I went around a corner saw a Christmas tree and like game fucking odd so I'm like alright blah 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 at one point like they're like oh you forgot this one gift so I'm standing there and I have this sweater that my aunt gave me and I'm wearing it on the front of my shirt and I'm like going in circles and like I'm like oh this is like fantastic they're like try it out I'm like I'll just put it on top of me like I remember doing this and like my cousin Nicole's there and she's cool so we had just told her, like, we had eaten this acid, and she's looking at me, and she realizes, like, that I'm completely, totally, like, tripping balls. And then, like, Mike needs nowhere to be seen. He's, like, hiding in the other room. And so, finally, like, wind up being in there for, like, a half an hour, 40 minutes by myself, like, totally lose my mind. And then, uh, and then finally everybody leaves, like, I go back in, I find, like, Mike D in the TV room, like, hiding in the corner. <laughs> That was usually my where I ended yeah. up was hiding in the corner. And I was like, I was like, what's going on? I was like, we have to leave. I'm like, okay, no problem. So like, we decided that we're gonna leave now. We're gonna go up to Mike D's place. Bad decision. We leave, get on Pleasant Valley Road, Pleasant Valley Way. And I remember like, you've been on this road for like ever. Like, we should be at your house by now. Like, I realized that I'm driving on the shoulder. And I'm going like five miles an hour. <laughs> And somehow, like, I'm in front of, like, the armory in West Orange, like, losing my mind. Mike D's not talking to me, so, like, we wind up getting over there, and there's a Dunkin' Donuts I was not not talking to you. I couldn't talk. Yeah, you, like, I, I just, lost like, the ability to verbally communicate. And how I'm, like, talking now, I'm basically having an open-ended conversation, like, you know, just to make sure that I wasn't going to lose my mind. And then, uh, we decide to make a trip to or bring you to the Dunkin' Donuts, on my Christmas night. It's like the weirdest like place. It's all neon lit up. And uh, I don't know. It was all over from there. But Mike D was basically incommunicado at that point. Uh, I think at some point I ended up hiding behind a dumpster. Yes, we were definitely hiding behind a dumpster. And then I was like, instead of smoking cigarettes, because I didn't have cigarettes, I was just rolling joints the whole night. So at one point, Mike like snaps out of her seat. He's like, what are you doing? He's like smoking joints nonstop. He's like, you have to stop. He's like, they're gonna know. I'm like, who's gonna know what? I was like, I'm smoking a joint. He's like, can't smoke any more joints. I was like, I have to. I was like, and then all of a sudden, like, you stop talking to me. You're like, my mom's gonna know. I was like, what's your mom? Like, what's your mom gonna know? I'm going out to have a cigarette. She's like, she knows. I was like, what's she doing? I was like, you're like losing your mind. And then just stop talking to me for like four or five hours after that. And like. That was a good Christmas. That was a great Christmas. I think Franny Lake Shore. I can't remember anyway. I just lost the ability to yeah. to, to communicate with with other humans. Your poor mom. Oh my god. It's like, is Michael down there? I was like, yeah. He's like, you know, he's uh, he's, he's coming to watch the movie. I'm just gonna like go have a cigarette real quick. <laughs> you just had a cigarette three minutes ago. Oh no, another one. Probably standing there with a cigarette and enjoying and enjoying each hand. hand. That was one of many uh, wonderful Christmas Eves or Christmas days. Excuse me. 
but yeah, no, Christmas has always been a special time. I don't know what for. I know why people have it now. I mean, Jesus, living in a cold environment, you only have like certain things that are happening. Like Christmas is a big one of them. So it's like you need something to look forward to. Yeah, this like time seriously, living in a cabin somewhere and like I don't know, like well, maybe I'll actually go into town and uh, communicate with other people. Or get an orange. Or go get an orange or a plum. Maybe it was a plum. Plums were popular too. Definitely, I know oranges were something that they would put in stockings. Stockings. Stockings are good. Good pre-present. Like, were you, were your stockings just candy, or was there always like some kind of like small gift? Of My ours was always like really practical stuff. It was always like toothpaste, deodorant, like you know stuff that you needed but like didn't you know yeah, care that terrible much about stuff. socks. Yeah. Socks. Yeah. I always get pack of gum or some kind of gum also the uh, candy canes full of uh, Reese's peanut butter Reese's yes peanut butter. also good and also what was it weird were you a, did, you guys were not a Christmas Eve present family I know some people are no Christmas we were we were family. a Christmas day present family yeah, I dated a Christmas Eve person once was that was weird. Yeah, we were always Christmas Day for presents. Yeah. Oh. What else about Christmas, Mike? Dude? Where was your favorite place, uh, if you weren't living around here, to be living for Christmas? I only bring this up because I was thinking of some like one of my weird experiences in my mm. younger gypsy lifestyle. I don't think I've ever celebrated Christmas not in New Jersey. Mm, makes sense. Actually, the, when I come to... Actually, that's not true. I, I, I did a couple in, in Brooklyn and in New York City, but yeah. My first, like, high Christmas uh, like, alone was probably in Boston. And uh, I remember it, like, snowed this winter and, like, the tea kind of shut down, so I had to walk like, so many blocks over. I had to cut across over uh, Brookline to the border of Brighton. And it was like Christmas Eve, dead calm, and there was like a foot of snow. Like the, the everything was like it was probably more than a foot because I had gotten stuck there for like two ships. And I remember walking through the city and like, like, I remember being like, "Oh my God, you're not going to be home for like Christmas." And I was like, "There's this weird, awesome, like, great feeling I had like walking through a snowstorm and it's like, I don't know, it was just like being that age or something, but." That was the first uh, first time I was ever like away from family for for the holidays. It was very liberating. Maybe just because it's like Boston being like empty and like right on Con Ave, there's like nobody anywhere, and the cars are all like perfectly covered. It was like really beautiful. I still remember that. That was followed by the next day. It was the uh, first time I've ever been mugged was also in that same street like uh, the next day which was weird have you ever been mugged like some good suck up yeah like in the city like whatever. oh yeah a bunch of times not a bunch probably like three yeah, I think that was, that was like I've been the... mugged three or four times in oh, New York yeah. I remember I was like oh my gosh it never really bothered me in a way because well, I was like, I don't really have anything worth taking. 
Like, I just, like, I got myself in a situation because I was all, like, badass back then where I fought back and, like, I didn't get my wallet, but I wound up getting, like, um, I wound up getting, like, my bag stolen. I remember a fight back and, like, the kid lived in, like, the neighborhood that, like, two blocks over. Um, and so I was, remember, I would always be, like, waiting for the tea. And, like, and, like the one day, like, I jump on the tea, I got out of there. So I knew they were going to be, like, looking for me. And, um, that was, like, because it was weird. Like, I moved up there, like, I was afraid. I forgot what happened. Like, I wasn't carrying a weapon because I don't think I was, um, whatever. I don't think it was, like, on parole or anything. I'm just, like, passed. Maybe not. I don't Anyway. Not that, like, that sounds, that sounds worse than it is. You know, <laughs> yeah, that sounds way worse like, than yeah. it is. But, um, yeah, I remember. I was, like, it was crazy. So, was, yeah, the first time I ever got mugged was in Boston. Day after, uh. It was the day after Christmas to me. Yeah. It was cool. I was like all by myself. It was so weird. My sister was gone. Uh, my roommate was gone. Was... I was living on eggs and ramen at the time. It's not a bad diet, honestly. Eggs, ramen, and pork roll. Like I used to put uh, pork roll or Taylor ham in my ramen all the time. It's just good. Get a little fat into the broth, you know. No, you fry it before, and I, I would drain out more of the liquid, and I would make it more of like a, like you know, just noodles, like just cooked noodles. And like that. I can't eat ramen anymore. Though. I mean, real ramen, yeah. But... All right, we're going out for a cigarette. Then, uh, an instrument. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Oh. Okay, yeah, next time we need uh, background music. Yes. We can like have. Christmas carols or uh, Megadeth or something. Megadeth Christmas. Ooh. Is that a thing? I don't know. Off to check. It might be a thing. It's a mashup now. <laughs> For the next segment, I'm going to run on the treadmill that's next to us. While playing D and D and Uno at the same time, but I do want to play Uno. I played Uno. Used to be real. Hey everyone, it's Steve Politi, sports columnist from StarLedgerNG.com. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't have a fireplace in our living room, so we definitely had WPIX and the U Log on the TV during the holiday season. I've got great memories of watching that and waiting to see if it would finally reset while you were watching it. I'm not sure I ever caught it just at the right time. But, yeah, that's a part of uh, part of New Jersey and part of growing up that I'll always remember. So I hope everyone has a great holiday season. Hope you're enjoying this uh, tribute to the U-Log and uh, peace for the new year. Thanks. Happy holidays. <laughs>